You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. Friday morning, very good morning to you and welcome along to uh, OTB AM this morning. Owen, how are you getting on? Very well, how are you? I'm alright, it's wet and windy outside, it's wild I'd go as far as to say, certainly where we are. It certainly is. It is. It's wet and wild. It's proper sort of Six Nations weather, isn't it? It feels like Kerry weather. It feels to me like the sort of weather that's in Kerry pretty much most of the time. That sort of, you know, the wildness, the extremities. Yeah, like as a Midlands man yourself, you wouldn't really feel that good sea gust. But uh, today is one of those first times you get to feel it, so enjoy it. There was a wind in Westmeath, I think, about 35 or 36 years ago. Heard about that, yeah. Um, and But it hasn't been seen since. Well, hey. In the Boglands. Uh, not nothing since you've left. Um, the most exciting thing that's happened to me this morning, I've just discovered as I logged into my trusty laptop here in front of me, that uh, Nathan Murphy, who was hosting Off the Ball last night, has left his Twitter page open. And he most likely won't be up just yet. So we probably have a window, I would think, of in the region of about a half an hour. If anybody's got any thoughts about things that uh, we could potentially jump in there and tweet, feel free to get in touch with us. I mean, you know, generally the tone of Nathan's tweets are sort of very pro, hardcore pro Mayo. Um, so if there's anything that kind of challenges that notion, we're definitely open and uh, willing, I think, to go in there and jump in with some Twitter action. But he's tried to be a bit of a cute hooer this week in the wake of Mayo's very successful start to the National League. And a Mayo person trying to be a cute hooer just doesn't work whatsoever. So uh, What shape did his cute hoorism take? Because he was in here with Kieran Donny during the week uh, saying that, this was off air now, by the way, and I don't mind um, sort of speaking out of school in that regard, but definitely saying that uh, Mayo are... I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but Mayo are going to win the All-Ireland. Well, that wouldn't be like him, would it? Exactly. That, that's proper Mayo behaviour right there. You've got to believe if you're a Mayo person. And you've got to be arrogant. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to be brash. And that's exactly the sort of character we're talking about here. What, like, I mean, it's so foolish. Two rounds into the league, one game that was a total write-off. And, I mean, fair enough, they were impressed with the other one. And there's young players coming through. But uh, there ain't nobody in Kerry getting carried away after two rounds of the league, is what I'm saying. No, well, there probably is. To be really? quite honest with you, like, what's what's the point on going? To you the don't even get excited after winning an, Arl- an Ireland semi-final. It might not do rounds of the league. That's absolutely not true. Uh, the well, idea- you don't travel for it, as you said yourself during the week. Like, what's the point of the national league if you can't get excited after a couple of games? Like, why why is there thousands of people turning up for these matches if you can't get a little bit excited? I'm, I'm unbelievably excited because we're as yet un- unbeaten from Westmead point of view. But like, we're allowed to get excited because nothing else is going to happen later on in the year. Whereas you boys, there's just everything is going on. Um, and I kind of understand why it's not that exciting. Well, I'll tell you this, if Kerry end up winning tomorrow night, I'll be very, very excited. So, uh, apologies in advance, yeah. Mr. Sort of uh, Good. Excitement Checker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right, the other thing that's um, on this very note that's piqued our interest this morning, on, do you want to let people Yeah, know we'll it? just uh, go straight to one of the back pages here. It's the back page of the Mayor, Pat Nolan, res- uh, reporting this morning. Uh, you can see out beside Jason Sherlock's head, Dublin legend Sherlock leaves post as Blues forward coach and in Talisman Connolly on verge of return. So it's basically what it says in the tin here. Uh, Jason Sherlock looks set to leave uh, the Dublin football camp. In fact, he is gone from uh, the Dublin football camp. He was brought on board uh, ahead of the 2015 campaign, but will not play a part this year. Sherlock has been notably absent from the sideline this year, and it is believed that relations had become strained uh, between Jason Sherlock uh, and Jim Gavin. Uh, and uh, with, with um, the tipping point thought to be J.O., the documentary on Sherlock's life and career with Jared Norty over Christmas. So that is why there seems to be a, a sort of flaw in the relationship that uh, has developed. And now he's after leaving. Now, the thing about Connolly, when you say Connolly in, 
He's not actually in with the Dublin panel just yet, but Brian Cullen is training with him on a one-to-one basis, it says here. Uh, he will be ready to go back to full Dublin training soon, reports Pat Nolan this morning. So he obviously hasn't featured since the early stages of last year's league, and uh, Jim Gavin has obviously been quite coy on the possibility of him returning. But if you've sent out your director of high performance out to train with him one-to-one and he's back uh, training himself... What's he getting ready for? He's yeah. getting ready for Dublin. The Jason Sherlock news is particularly incredible. I, I watched the documentary. I have to say I really enjoyed it. There wasn't anything in it that I recall. I'd have to watch it back to say for absolute certain that I recall was necessarily sort of spilling the um, family details or airing the laundry in public or anything like it. It was really very much a, a personal story uh, from his point of view. It's like from Jason Sherlock's uh, angle. He's been there maybe, f- is it four years now? He's been, I think, primarily responsible for the... Um, coaching the attack uh, from a Dublin perspective and uh, I mean one of the things that struck me from the documentary was the fissure that had been created from his departure from Dublin uh, as a player and how much that really sort of hurt him the manner of it I suppose as much as anything else and how he kind of fallen off in terms of his form and that um, and it really felt like he was going back in he had unfinished business that he was taking care of business now he was Big, a big part of uh, an All-Ireland winning juggernaut uh, and for this to happen as well I'm sure on a personal level must be um, pretty, uh, pretty tough for him but uh, I mean it must give great solace to the likes of Kerry and I'm presuming other uh, teams around the country as well this morning that somebody who was such a crucial part because from everything you see and read from players who've been part of that setup and have since been spat out of it the importance of his role not only on the sort of Gene players up before games and getting them mentally psyched for it, but also that bringing that basketball approach that had been documented from A to Z about uh, essentially he was responsible for killing the blanket defence. Yeah, he certainly thought that way. I know that there was other people who got credit, including the likes of Mark Ingle, a basketball coach who was literally brought in for that effect. And killing yeah. the blanket defence is one thing they've done in terms of possession game, which kind of really came to prominence at the end of 2017. I was kind of brought to another level, I feel, last year, and I presume we'll see a lot more of it this year. It's interesting that you mentioned that. Like, 10 years ago, if we talk about people within camps doing a lot of media, the Kerry manager who won the All-Ireland wrote a book in the middle of the season. And now uh, a guy who's not even the manager uh, does a documentary that has nothing to do with football. And that tends to be the camel that breaks the... Or the straw that breaks the camel's back, I should camel say. camel that breaks the straw's uh, back. It's hard to know whether it's like... It doesn't feel like... Do you remember the uh, um, Jim McGuinness sort of Kevin Cassidy thing where it felt as if the minute of what had happened was not that important uh, versus what happened became really important. So it was a sacrificial lamb, essentially, from Jim McGuinness's point of view that Kevin Cassidy was used as a message sent to the rest of the team that, listen, this is what's going to happen if you don't take this shit seriously. Whereas, like, it doesn't feel like that's a thing that Dublin even would require, necessarily. Like, it doesn't feel as if, you know, at this point, at this juncture of the season, getting rid of somebody like Jason Sherlock is sending a message to anybody. No, it doesn't really. It's I, I, I do find it quite strange. We, to be fair, we had heard that there, there, this thing was bubbling under the surface for a little while. Obviously, he, he wasn't there on the sideline for the first game up in Clonus against Monaghan. So there was a couple of question marks that we'd heard that Jason Sherlock may not be coming back. But you never know early in the season. Somebody else uh, could be just doing it temporarily and he could be taking an extended break. But now it seems that this is kind of a full stop on Jason Sherlock's career with the Dublin uh, team. For now, that is. Yeah. Uh, and the other news that you mentioned in the Murr this morning is that the greatest footballer of all time is uh, not quite in, but he's getting there. 
He's back in training, as Oma's saying. He's been uh, trained by Brian Cullen. That seems like a pretty clear indicator that um, he will be on the way back. Like He hasn't played much football as a thing for either club or uh, county over the last while. So it's you would assume, from Jim Gavin's point of view, if this is going to happen... Do it now. Like, what's the point in waiting until the end of the league where you're trying to get game minutes under a guy's belt before the championship begins? I, I mean, having said that, and as I say it, I do realise that sort of most of Dublin's first five or six games are, you know, fairly uh, straightforward fixtures. But, uh, but And also ones they don't care about, yeah. comparatively. Jim Gavin himself last week said we're still in pre-season, which is a rather scary thought if you're mm. from Galway, given the way they just brushed him aside last week. Dimmer Connolly clearly looked after himself last summer extremely well. If you look at the shape he was in in the United States, he wasn't there to just enjoy himself. When he was there to play football, he was playing football and he was taking it very, very seriously. So he's a guy who can get himself into shape when he wants to. He clearly looks after himself quite well. How much time do you actually need to get up and running for to be a top-class Dublin footballer? Well, the thing is you actually do have a bit of time because... Dublin don't have a game, in my mind, of any major importance until July. So you've got you've got five months here to get yourself up to the peak of things because it doesn't matter if he's involved in the league. Yeah, the league is the most yeah, relevant yeah. thing, uh, the, the most relevant league for. Dublin at the same time, they do history. have to get him in now, right? Like I understand the point, but at the same time, there isn't any point in introducing him to the setup, reintroducing a player to the setup while he's been playing football in the US it won't be anywhere near and while he could take it as seriously as anything it won't be anywhere near the level that he'll need to get up to for this uh, and I suppose if everybody's in agreement that he needs to get in there isn't any reason to hold off for a couple of months I would think do it now Sorry, that's what I mean but there is a, a little element of things like so, so it's exactly your point he hasn't played since the replay two years ago so you do have that patience. You do have five months for him to get up to full speed, bring him into the camp. And if he is a little bit off it, at least it, he doesn't need to be ready for Kerry this weekend. He doesn't need to be ready for Mayo in two weeks' time. He needs to be ready for the summertime. And even the start of the summer from a Dublin perspective mm. just is not that important. There is only one thing on their mind, and their season starts in July. Yeah, it's not quite, I would argue it's not quite five months because it's the whatever remainder of games are there in the league and then there's obviously a bit of a gap before the Leinster Championship well, I'm just talking about conditioning I'm talking about like, getting this guy ready to, be, to play I think we're talking about the same thing here yeah. like, I, I'm not saying he's in bad shape last year like, what I'm trying to say is that he kept himself relatively fine that the body of work isn't as huge in terms of getting himself back to being a top class Dublin footballer yeah. but I do think he has time as well so this is good news from a Dublin perspective. There, I just can't see any downside to this. Like People can talk about yeah. Connolly perhaps being a loose cannon. I disagree. I think that uh, every footballer who's got any bit of individuality could be deemed to be a loose cannon. He is one of the most gifted footballers we've seen this century. You've got to have him back in when this much is at stake. It reflects brilliantly on Jim Gavin too that he is understanding of all that stuff and says... Well, there is, there is definitely a risk here. In a, in a year where we're going for immortality, there is a risk here, and I'm willing to take that risk because the payoff is uh, well worth it. And that's to his credit. Like, I'm sure you're hoping that it sort of backfires for him. But Well, sure. But like the, the one last thing I would say on that is that it does prove this idea that last year's All-Ireland final, or last year's All-Ireland Championship being a complete procession for Dublin doesn't actually represent the ease with which Dublin are better than the rest of the country because of the list of fixtures that they had. Jim Gavin yeah. clearly thinks that they need something else because there is this illusion that they are that much ahead of the, the pack. They just had a nice run last year with other teams getting knocked out. We don't have a huge amount of time to get into it and we're going to come back to it in a bit more detail later on but uh, Karen Donnelly has a very interesting suggestion in his Irish Daily Star column this morning about the uh, Kerry 9 team versus the, I mean, what we're interpreting as the Dublin 2018 uh, final team and how he would... Stroke his chin of an afternoon and consider about, uh, you can see the teams on your screen there, and consider about um, 
how many of each team gets in the other team, essentially? Basically. So he's saying that, he's talking about the start of the Euroleague's game in 2009, ahead of Kerry against Dublin tomorrow night. He says, when we hammered them by 17 points in 09, I think we had our best team since the Mikko era. He says, you could lose yourself in a daydream about a clash between the Kerry team of the late noughties and the current Dublin side. That would be some battle. It would be very hard to call. The Tyrone team of the noughties would put it up to them too. So Dublin win that, is what I'm saying, and I'll make that case a bit later on. Yeah, I think Kerry win. Mm. I, I think that's uh, one of the great squads that... To be fair, like we can get stuck into the nuts and bolts of 2008 all day as much as I've never watched that game back. Uh, the, I, I do feel that, that w- there was like a Samba. There was an All-Ireland medal. Loads of All-Ireland medals left out on the pitch at Croke Park that day, yeah. which would have obviously set Kerry up to go for the four in a row in 09. You look at that team, they probably would have done it and they would have been in four in a row territory as well. Yeah. I know there's lots of what-ifs well, and all I that mean, sort of thing. And ultimately, that you will find out about later on is kind of the central focal point of my argument that... Uh, they left a lot behind them and, you know, this Dublin team, and maybe that's the point about this Dublin team, that actually if you were to go through it, I mean, there clearly are so many players in that Kerry team that would not quite walk, but would definitely be in that Dublin selection. There isn't any question about it if you look across the players there. But uh, as a group, and if we measure success by, you know, shows your medals. Well then... Why are we even having this debate? It's a good point, on. I think if, we have, if, if we're just judging this on medals, then like well, ultimately that's it. I mean, I think from your perspective, surely that's an argument that resonates. So what? Most of them have five All Ireland medals. Some of them, have, a so lot of them were five and six, and Kerry were four and five, I think, or maybe four and six. Well, like you, you have Darrow O'Shea in that team who would have done two thousand or four or six or seven or nine. So that's five mm. ninety-seven. That's uh, that's six. Ah, yeah, but look at it. So there's, 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 you there's can't be bringing ninety-seven into it. I'm, well, I'm has, before we get into really great detail. I'm I'm saying straight off the bat that you're not allowed when we get into this later on to introduce anything pre mid two thousands. I'm not having that. But I'm just saying in terms of the All Ireland Medal argument that you just brought up. Let's just let's just kill that argument right now because it's a stupid thing to talk about. That in wasn't the that wasn't what I said. I'll come back to it later on. Um, right, here's what's coming up. Uh, we're going to talk about Ireland ver- uh, versus Scotland this weekend. Uh, with a very bullish Alan Quinlan, who's uh, going to join us in the studio very shortly. He's delighted with that comment, and we'll be with you in just a minute to explain why he's bullish. Uh, we're going to tell you what's happening in the back pages of the uh, sports pages as well very shortly. Anna Kessel, the sports journalist, is going to join us on the line to talk about a new and uh, innovative um, award in Irish media. So that's coming your way at about 20 past eight. Darren Cleary will be in the studio after that to let you know what's happening in live sport. And then we are going to talk about uh, in a bit more detail that Dublin versus uh, Kerry. But before all of that, uh, Jacob Stockdale in conversation ahead of Ireland-Scotland uh, with our own Stephen Doyle during the week. Is um, half the battle of beating Scotland suffocating Finn Russell? Um, yeah, like, you know, any time you play an opposition, you want to put their prep 10 under as much pressure as you can. And, yeah, like, you know, if you let if you let Finn Russell, you know, uh, control the game and run the game, and uh, you know, let you let him get into it. He, he's one of the, the most dangerous players in the world, and you know he's 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 a class player. Uh, so yeah, look, I think he's going to be he's going to be a, like a big person that we're going to have to try and uh, shut down in the game. Joe said in wanting to recover from the England game, the important thing was not to go chasing the championship. Has that been a big message? And I suppose maybe just approaching the first ten minutes of that game against Scotland. That's your your big target. Yeah, like you know, Joe. Yeah, Joe has kind of alluded to that, and, he, and um, you know, the way the way that if we are going to win this championship, the way that we're going to do it is not by yeah, like you know, he says chasing games. It's, it's going to be about you know just making sure that we that we prepare well and perform well, like like we've done uh, for a while. So yeah, for us, it's just you know, um, go into this game 
and only worry about this game and then you know after this one's over then we worry about the next one Robbie Henshaw Gary Ringrow is missing like there's an awful lot of disruption to the back line Jacob is that going to be a big problem going into this game uh, no I don't think so um, obviously it's you know Gary and, and, and Robbie are two big losses because they're both you know really really quality players but I mean when you've got Chris Farrell coming in uh, you know like last year he, he came in for one game got, got man of the match you know so that's kind of quality that player he is and and obviously, then you've got Carnes at fullback, and you know he's been there <laughs> plenty of times there before. So yeah, like, like you know, that's that's what we've been building, uh, and you know that that, and that's the kind of the mentality that there is in in the squad that whenever one player goes out, the other player comes in, and, and they're able to do a good job. And I've absolutely no doubt that Chris is going to do they can do a great job in that sense. And England found a lot of green grass when they kicked to the fullback area last year. When you get Rob coming back in, how important is his communication to the wingers as well, like yourself? Yeah, Rob's a real classy player, and, and he helps out, uh, you know, massively uh, in terms, you know, in terms of, of what you want to, to do, um, you know, in your grass coverage, and and yeah, like, you know, he's he's been doing that for a long time, and and I suppose that experience at the back is is really helpful, especially you know for me because you know realistically, you know, I don't have that many caps, I don't have that much experience at this level, um, you know, so just to be able to do my own job and kind of, you know, knowing that he'll he'll have have me covered is 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 really really good. That is Jacob Stockdale in conversation with uh, Stephen Doyle during the week at at uh, Carton House. I think Alan Quinlan. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, such an amazing weekend to look forward to in so many ways. I know Owen had flagged up for the, before the Six Nations. I was making the case that England was the biggest game upcoming, and he was very much saying, obviously, in the context of the World Cup, it's all about this one. And I'm on board now, Owen, by the way. I've come around to your way of thinking. The one thing I just wonder about is, and we've talked about it in a Liverpool context over the last few weeks, just about the impact of the little wobble that they've had, right? And it doesn't matter about how it came about, but it happened. And now suddenly there's a very different set of challenges <coughs> ahead in a way that very much applies to Ireland now. Yeah, for sure. They've got to dust themselves down. And in sport, when you lose matches or you're under pressure, and um, I think there was a lot of hysteria over the loss last week. Mm-hmm. Look, it was it was a disappointing loss, and we know that, and it's been covered so much. But for players, and if I was in the squad or any of the players in the squad, I think they've just got to try and address, they've probably addressed the situation at the start of the week, and then your mind quickly has to go to what we got to do on Saturday. I think... Um, Joe Schmidt has, and his side have got to focus on trying to get a good start. Two years ago, they were very slow out of the blocks, and Scotland kind of gained momentum. And to be fair, if you play in Murrayfield, it's not the most intimidating place to play if you start well and if you kind of settle into the game. I mean that respectfully. It's a brilliant place to play. Anytime I played there, I, I love singing the anthem, the, the Scottish anthem when I was standing in the Irish line. Um, so it's 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 an enjoyable place if you start well. If you kind of lose a bit of flow and momentum, the crowd get crazy and they really sense an opportunity there. And that's what they did two years ago. So I think for Ireland this week, and Joe Schmidt made a very relevant point, that Ireland, they, they don't have to go chasing this and trying to score tries and being taking risks and chances. Um, trying to fix the England game almost. Yeah, I think they just got to bend that, understand what happened and be physical. That They can control that very much so in their application. There'll be no lack of motivation or desire from the Irish players. They need to bring a lot of energy and they need to just kind of, for 50, 60 minutes until changes are made, just throw everything at it and hopefully, uh, you know, unsettle Ireland, get a few penalties, settle themselves in the game. Yeah. The opposite can happen if Scotland get a bit of momentum because they'll sense vulnerability and 
they probably believe that Ireland are a bit vulnerable. So in some ways, there's pressure on Ireland, but there's a little bit of pressure gone with that English game. They've got to start well. The changes don't help the situation because um, you're going to readjust and uh, different guys have... uh, you know they'll they'll have a fair bit of push to come into the game and 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 make an impact themselves. Can we come back to the specifics of it in a minute? And I don't want to be. You've mentioned hysteria there, and I don't want to be hysterical about it. But um, in terms of the case for us being in a bit of a hole in terms of the World Cup, um, just a couple of points, and I'm interested to get your response to them uh, collectively. So Eddie O'Sullivan was on uh, Wednesday Night Rugby during the week, and he was talking about the predictability of Ireland in a lot of ways. He didn't use that word, but a lot of the language that he was using was kind of suggesting that. We had the Robbie Henshaw, I mean, loosely experiment, I suppose, at 15 that didn't work as we might have hoped. The wings that both finished the game last weekend, there's defensive question marks over them. We are hoping that Rob Carney gets back into form. form. We're hoping that Conor Murray gets back into form. Uh, and we have a fifth choice lock starting this game tomorrow. Like, there's a collective of stuff there leading into yeah. the World Cup that's and, hugely and, concerning. And if they, if they kind of listen to people speaking on the outside about that, it may affect them. Like Quinn Rue coming into the game, you know he's a real opportunity now to to make an impact. He wasn't picked in the original squad for the Six Nations. He's got to deliver. He's got to go out and be abrasive, uh, be aggressive, and impose himself early on. Scotland have Johnny Gray back, which is a real added bonus. But I think Joe's going to put massive pressure on all these players to deliver. Now they have a lot of resilience built up over the years and with with losses and disappointments and they've clawed their way out of trouble on a number of occasions so there's a huge amount of experience in the side but Scotland will sense a little bit of opportunity with all that change and the psychological kind of scars of last week but like I said they've got to they've got to bin that they can't the only way they can address that is on Saturday so if Ireland get a good performance and a win it'll build their confidence and belief again but it's definitely added pressure for them and uh there's enough of good players in the side. Chris Farrell, he's a really, really good player. He was superb against Wales last year. Um, he can deliver. Quinn Roo, you know, he has to bring his strengths to the side. Sean O'Brien coming back in. Even though it's very unfair on Josh van der Fleer, I can see the reasoning to bring someone back who has a bit of an edge. He's aggressive. He'll be very vocal in the dressing room. He brings a lot of energy. Let's hope, you know, he's had so many injuries that he can make an impact in this game. Jack Conan is someone as well who's probably looked at the CJ Stander situation for the last number of years and went, well, it's what do I have to do? Because Stander's performances have been so consistent and such a high level. It's a real sense for him. If I was sitting now with Jack Conan, I'd be saying, well, here's your chance. Just go 120% for the whole game and just bring an energy and an aggression to say, well, you know, I can challenge for that spot. Um, and I can make an impact. So we've we've a lot of hungry guys coming in. Chris mm-hmm. Farrell want to play well. What about Rob Carney coming back? He, like all the questions last week, he'll be mad for a massive performance. I know it doesn't guarantee a, a performance, but if you, if the application and the attitude is right in these players, and uh, you know they have to motivate each other as well. You know, there's there's loads of experience. O'Mahony, O'Brien. Um, Furlong, Healy, Best, you know, they know they were below par last week, so they have to start in an aggressive manner. And it's not necessarily on the scoreboard, because I, I really do agree with what Joe said. If they go forcing it and trying to force a performance early on, it, you can come unstuck, because it's a very good uh, Scottish side. And if they kick Lucy to, to Hogg, Seymour, Maitland in the back three, they can really, really hurt you. So our kicking game was poor last week. Um, 
and our ability to get over the gain line was poor. So those things, a lot of yeah. facets of Irish performance needs to be better. What are Quinn Rude's strengths? Well, he's not a footballer, so he's not someone who's going to be passing balls or, or kind of making wide passes. He's just, he's a big lump who's a good scrummager, good line-out operator, and he's physical and aggressive. So he has to, you want, you want to see Quinn Rue putting in big impact tackles around the, break, around the fringes tomorrow, um, being physical in the, in the mall, and, and making carries, making hard yards off slow ball. And I think if he does that for 60 minutes, then you have an impact to Alton Deland coming on, who will bring a, a lot of energy. But I think he's been, he's been good this year, Quinn, Quinn Rue. He's, his game has improved, and you, you just think Henderson and Byrne missing is, you know, a few weeks ago we were talking about the, the, the depth in the second rows, and, and now we're kind of really, really stretched. So he's a physical brute, and he just has to bring physicality tomorrow, and that will hopefully enable James Ryan to to put a bit of footwork on and make some carries and and uh, and the back row as well. Yeah, there was, we're going to get a look there in a second at the second row depth chart. This was uh, Mike McCarthy's picks a few weeks ago and uh, Quinn Roo, uh, or Alton Delan obviously not featuring. Um, I mean, uh, that maybe tweaks around. It will invariably sort of tweak around and there's injuries and all that sort of stuff to deal with. But uh, he, it oh, seems like... He had John Klein uh, as number five, so that might become an option then for the World yeah. Cup, obviously. So. I tell you, if John Klein was available at the moment, he'd be in, he'd be in the mix. But um, it's tough. It's tough because... But look, he's, he's a line-out, just on Quinn Rue, he's like he seems like he calls line-outs at, at Connacht, and I mean, maybe we just have underestimated this guy, and he's going to sort of... Uh, well, we'll see, it's a, it's a big opportunity for him, he hasn't played too many, uh, people raised eyebrows when he started a couple of years ago in South Africa, and on the, on the, on the tour there, um, there's still a few question marks there about the impact, the consistent high-level impact, I think he is fitter, and he looks sharper, and... He's very What do you mean powerful. consistent high-level impact? What's I just mean moments in the game for a second row. Like if you have um, Donico Callan, for example, wasn't, and by his own admission, wouldn't be someone that who'd be constantly on the ball and passing. And he was just, Dunners was so fit that he could run hard lines, hit rocks, be a nuisance, be a big physical presence. And that's is the he, type is of... Is he not that? But Quinn Rue needs, uh, but Dunica had so many moments in the yeah. game, you know, impacts and breakdowns, uh, pick and goes, carries, huge number of tackles. That's what you want from, from your second row, who's not your footballing second row. I think the ideal balance for any second row partnership is one brute and one yeah. really silky skills line out operator. Um, so Quinn Rue is to play to his strengths. He's, he's the donkey. He's 19 stone, he's six foot six, he's really powerful. So, if he is to make some carries tomorrow, over the gain line, uh, breaking up the Scottish Mall, being powerful in the Irish Mall, stuff like that. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on him to do that and, and an emphasis and an onus on him to do that. But it's not ideal. You go back to the World Cup in 15, those changes. I think the changes now, are f- there's five changes, um, were really stretched. Mm. Um, if we get any more injuries, hopefully we don't. But there's a lot of top quality players missing. But they've got to cope now, and they've got to believe that they can go there and and get a result against a very, very good Scottish side. We'll get a look at the back row depth chart as well, and this is definitely one we want to get into. It a couple of changes we kind of touched on it there, but uh, Van der Fleer and Stander out, and Sean O'Brien and Conan then come in. So uh, initially, is it a weaker back row now? Uh, it's. I think when you had. Uh, what happened in November with O'Mahony, Stander, Van der Fleer, they were 
they were so good against New Zealand that they were the ones in possession. I've said this all along that you could change up the back row in in um, in any number of positions mm. and still have a very good back row there. They're all good players. Um, they're players who deliver consistently for the provinces. So it's it's um, it's not ideal, but having Sean O'Brien coming in, he will just be gunning to try and get a performance and, and get back on track. And like I said, Jack Conan as well, highly motivated to say, you know, I'm not I'm not sitting in, in the wings here. I don't want to wait behind CJ for the next couple of years and wait for my opportunity. What's the difference between CJ Stander and Jack Conan? <laughs> um, Jack is a, has a bit more kind of variety to his running game. He's more... Uh, I think he, he, he's probably someone who has an ability to be more evasive. CJ's big strength is, is just running out over people. And I think his game has developed over the years where he has a little bit more variety to his carries and stuff like that. But when you have someone who's making up on 20 carries, 20 tackles a game consistently, and a lot of them are big impacts, um, it's hard to shift that guy in front, you know. And Stander then has a real kind of energy about him all the time. So he's he's just a brilliant ball carrier. Um, I think, if anything, Jack Conan needs to be a bit more direct sometimes and run out over people. He's very, very quick in open spaces for a number eight. Mm. Um, he's aggressive. He's very powerful and strong. But I think if I was to kind of... The strengths he has with the evasion and his footwork and stuff like that... If I was saying to him, you've got to work on something, is actually going running out over people and sometimes in the hard yards just being really aggressive. But he's very, very quick for number eight. And sometimes there's not a lot between, there's not a lot between all these back rowers. So there's very small margins. So, like I said, I picked Jack Conner at the start of the week and I think he's, he's a really good number eight and it's another great opportunity for him. Would it have been a close call about putting Sean O'Brien at eight and just leaving the two flankers as they were? Yeah, it would have been something that he probably thought about. Um, but I think it'd be unfair in Jack Conan. He's very physical as well, and, and he's hard. Uh, he fronts up. and um, So, again, it's only splitting hairs, you know. Sure. Getting Shawnee in is, an, is, is bringing in a world-class player who is a real presence in the dressing room. And a lot of the players talk about his ability to motivate people around him and just be hard. They need hard men here on Saturday. You know, they need to be really... It's a dogfight they're in, you know. They're in a bit of a hole, as you say, Adrian. So they have to fight their way out. So I think with the other changes, it probably lent itself to bringing O'Brien in because van der Fleer has been so good, you know. One of the previews that I read this week spoke about the clash of styles off the cuff versus straight-laced. Is that, how, is that, is that where we're at? Yeah, well, I think we, we're, I, we're a very, very functional side in what we do and we're a very patient side. And I don't think they should go and change everything and, and try and do what Scotland do. Scotland, I don't think they, they're, they're a very well-balanced side, but I, you couldn't say that Scotland have a very dominant pack who'll overrun people. I think we have, we probably kick a little bit more, we're very functional in what we do, and we put huge pressure on the opposition. And it's been, 
you know, it stood us very, very well over the last number of years. Is the patience, the patience, it strikes me, could come back to bite us in the arse. There was one staff... Well, where the, pro- where the problem is, Adrian, is when we go behind. If you're chasing a game yeah. and you're not used to throwing caution to the wind and the, firing the ball the, everywhere. That was something about, if, we're, if we were more than a point behind at half-time, we have Last 20 games yeah. that we've so lost. That patience back a good work bit. there. Before Joe's time, it's about back 20 games that we've lost. The last 20 that we've lost, we've been behind at half-time. Mm. So that's a kind of a concern that, you know, are we good at chasing the games? And can teams contain us? Are we going to get a next-factor player? Uh, you know, is Earls going to run back and just sidestep three fellas and break through the line and we're going to score an incredible try? We don't seem to do that. Um, Stockdale so maybe on occasions. Yeah, on occasions. And I think we have that ability to do that. But I think we need to, maybe we need to build up a bit of a repertoire of doing that, particularly if it happens again. Um, like we we scored the most tries in the Six Nations last year, so it's not as if we're this negative side. So I, I find that people who say that don't look at the stats and the numbers, um, but we are very functional and we we tend to build a lot to, to sense opportunity. Rather, some teams kind of throw caution to the wind and they try and score a first or second or third phase. Um, but I think our pro- provinces and the national team have been very effective of what they what they've done. So. Yeah, it is a concern if we go behind that we're chasing a game. We chased it two years ago and we got 17 unanswered points, but we still, Scotland got a late try to kind of seal the victory. So it's, um, I think they just got to focus on this game and hopefully that depth, that question about the depth will be answered. I'm hearing you say, I'm, all I'm hearing is predictable is what I'm hearing back. I mean, I know there's sort of, uh, Schmidt has tackled it this week saying we have a varied game. He talked about set piece, talked about varied kicking. He said we're varied in attack, but... Um, I actually think we overplay sometimes in our own in our own half. Um, we did that last week. Um, you can't accuse Ireland of not putting width in their game and just being negative and kind of keeping it tight all the time because they do go over and back a lot mm. sometimes we just need a bit more penetration and and maybe if someone makes a line break just to off the cuff um, throw caution to the wind a little bit but uh, I just sense there'll be a, a, a different sort of energy this week my worry is it's a good Scottish side who look very very strong on paper WP Nell is not playing um, he's, a, he's a little bit of a lost one but they have mm. Johnny Gray back and um, it's certainly a good Scottish side. Yeah, look exceptionally strong, and particularly across the back line. Um, you mentioned Chris Farrell a bit earlier on and talked to us a little bit more then about the midfield, and Aki has got some criticism, obviously, for his uh, first receiver role, but that combination, obviously, we're losing a leader in the team when Henshaw's not there, regardless of sort of what form he's in, but uh, Aki and Farrell against that uh, Jones and Johnson midfield. Yeah, it's... Um well, I tell you, Hugh Jones is a very, very, very dangerous player. He's someone they've got to watch. Um, he was really good from last year in the Six Nations. Made that brilliant line break and scored a try against England. Um, good in November as well. And I just think, first and foremost, we've got to be rock solid defensively. Um, and that's probably the key for, for Aki and Farrell, that they work well together and they don't give up any opportunities in those kind of wider channels. Mm. And, and then in attack, I think, you know, Aki's got to step up and, and bring other people into the game and, and sometimes just put the head down. I think a little bit last week he was trying to shovel on the ball a little bit. You'd just love to see him off the back of a line out taking a, a, a hard line at Finn Russell a couple of times and just giving a good target for the Irish pack to come around the corner and just be a bit direct 
Um, I think Farrell's hands are lovely, so there's, it's a really good balance. I just hope it works. They haven't played together. Um, did they play together in that Welsh game last year? Was, was Aki 12? I can't remember. And I, well, I think he was, because um, he's played, he started his last 13 games, the last 13 games, I think Aki. So um, I, I'm not concerned about it. I think they've just got to be very aware of the opposition. But also, if the two of them get running at Johnson and, and Hugh Jones, I think they can make inroads. Yeah, uh, I said a bullish Alan Quinlan is coming in after a few minutes, and you rolled your eyes up to heaven. I'm up for I'm up for <laughs> myself. Uh, I'm going over there. Obviously, I'm doing the commentary, and uh, it's not going to be easy. Well, look, I'd be, I was, uh, I was nervous last week, particularly before the game. Uh, when it gets closer to the game, I get a sense of where I'm at myself. But um, I just think that I think they will respond. I think there was a lot of hysteria last week, and. Some of it correct, some of it a little bit over the top. It was a setback. You're talking we, about Owen specifically? We, we what was the sort of stuff that was over the top in your view? I just think that, you know, I saw some pieces about how poor Ireland were and we've no plan B. And We were poor. We were poor, but it was the way it was being said. It was an incredibly good English side and we just got caught cold out of the blocks and it can happen. We haven't become a bad team. I'm surprised you're not suggesting we're a bad team now, are you? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm suggesting actually the fact that we were poor last week is that I'm agreeing with you that this idea that there's a chasm suddenly between Ireland and England is just nonsense. Yeah, and we might win this week. We could have zero from two, which but would be an Ireland by is what you're saying. What? Last word. Will you be Scottish people watching this? We'll get back to <laughs> well, greater towns. You say there will be. Yeah. What do you say? Uh, I just fancy him to to, to by win by five, seven five. points. All right, good stuff. Talk to you on Monday. Hopefully, I'm right because yeah. I'm sick of talking about <laughs> the negativity this week. Thanks a million. Safe trip. Enjoy Thanks. it. Alan Quinlan there is with us uh, as always on a Friday. Here is Andy Dunn. Meanwhile, on uh, whether Ireland this Ireland one side are in fact one dimensional. Speculation, but I suppose like, by comparison. The Leinster teams he coached were, were very um, expressive and were very um, attack-minded, were very fluent in attack. His Irish teams certainly lacked that level of fluency. Um, you could counter-argue that you know the time is less on the ball at international level. It's higher intensity and you can't, just as you, you can't compare like with like at provincial level going up a level to international and maybe you need to be more um, dogmatic about structured play. But... Um, yeah, I suspect if the IRFU, which they're not going to do, but if they sat down, Joe, and said, you, you have freedom to go and lose a couple of games if it betters our style of play, I suspect he might embrace that. Yeah, I mean, it would be... He's not. I don't think he's averse to being um, attacking or attack-minded. I just think his, his current strategy to, to, to success and, and to scoring tries and points is, is very, very one-dimensional. One yeah, that is uh, Andy Dunn, who was uh, talking to the lads during the week. It was uh, yesterday, in fact, on the back of the team news ahead of Ireland versus Scotland. All right, uh, the Investec, uh, Investec 20 by 20 Media Awards is a new initiative which is built uh, to recognise excellence in Irish journalism, which is based on the coverage of women in sport. And amongst the judges and author uh, is author and journalist Anna Kessel, who joins us on the line. Good morning to you, Anna. Morning, how are you? Very good, thanks a lot for uh, taking the call this morning. Uh, I suppose, just to kick things off, we probably at some point or another want to get to a place where an award like this is a straight-out shootout between journalists, where it's not to do with women or to do with race, to do with gender, um, but we've work to do, obviously. 
We do. And of course, we have sports journalism awards already. We, we certainly have them in the UK. And there's a really good example of, of just this year, the shortlist have just come out. There was an amazing, really, really important global news story about women footballers in Afghanistan facing sexual abuse and violence, um, allegedly by the president of the Football Federation. And this story that made a global impact didn't even reach the shortlist of the awards. Right. It was, you know, it was battered aside by football transfer stories, to the MLS or whatever. So at the moment, we don't value women's sports stories. And that's why this award is so important, because it's saying, yes, we do. Here's a here's a big prize pot every single month. Um, it matters. Let's let's improve the quality. Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe it's just a, it's such a simple question, but a very straightforward answer. But we'll ask it anyway. What's why does a story like that not get there, in your opinion? <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, even if you're the biggest dinosaur in the world, just on logic, surely that's a massive Mm. story and that can't be kept out. Yeah, you can see a shot of it there on the the screen as well. Um, Maybe this sort of question feeds into it, but uh, maybe you've answered already, but just uh, sport generally as an industry, where does it sit, in your opinion, um, uh, in terms of gender balance, generally when you compare it to other industries? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think that sport tends to think of itself as a, as a different set of rules. Um, but you, we've only got to look at the, the pay gap, for example. In football, it's uh, women earn around 1% of what the men earn. So that's a 99% pay gap, which in any other industry would probably have people taking to the streets. But I think we're so used to this huge gulf between the way men and women's sport is treated that we, we just accept it. Anna, what's your take on the connection between men's football clubs and women's teams that are associated with the clubs? Because there are huge positives to it, as we've seen with the likes of Manchester United uh, getting involved with a, a women's team in the Super League. But also there's negatives to it as well. We had Stephanie Roach, the Irish international studio with us a while ago, and she was talking to us about her experience at Sunderland, where things were going pretty well for the women's team, but the men's team got relegated to League One, and therefore the women's team just suddenly went bust. Yeah, we've seen that over and again in, in women's football. I mean, it happened years ago with, with Charlton. They got relegated and um, uh, the women's football team at that time cost around a quarter of a million to run. But it was just seen as dispensable. I like to think that where we've got to now, we are starting to move to a place where big teams are really valuing their women's team and seeing that the positives that it brings. And if you just look at it in terms of a business sense, women's sport has so much room to grow because it's so small. <laughs> The audience for it is such a smaller share than the men's audience. So just on a business level, it, that's that's where your revenue is going to come from. Grow that sport and find a new audience and you will bring in the money. So that if even if we're not doing this for the reasons that maybe we should be doing it, that it has to be driven by a commercial thing, that that's actually the thing that makes most sense and, and, sense, and probably in a lot of ways is probably the thing that uh, results in the momentum that is certainly on this side of the channel is behind women's sport at the minute, that actually the commercial side of it is the thing that ends up getting this uh, over the line in a way that, uh, you know, that uh, sort of mentioned at the top, that the 20 by 20 initiative has to be a thing because we're um, obviously in a, a coming out of a very negative space in relation to the coverage of women in sport, but that the commercial driver behind all that is the thing that ultimately gets this done. It just makes sense. I mean, there was um, one of the guys from Lewis FC, which is the only football club in the world to pay its male and female players equally. He was talking about this this week and he gave the really good example of Coke and Diet Coke. So Coke was, you know, huge global brand. In the early 1980s, they thought, hey, let's set up Diet Coke. And 
you know, obviously initially it's a loss making exercise, but now it's just as big a brand as Coke and it bring, brings in just as much money, but they spent time investing in it and finding a new audience for this new product. Yeah. Um, the, 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 I mean, people frequently talk about the appetite that is there for, um, I suppose there's two sides of it, the coverage of women's sport and women's coverage of sport, if that makes some sense. Yeah. Some, some of the research that's been done, um, particularly around the 20 by 20 initiative, it proves that there is an audience, if required, the research is now there to say that actually there is an audience um, for that coverage. Yeah, there absolutely is an audience. I mean, when you look at some of the attendance figures for, for women's sport, they're really impressive. Um, you know, millions and million, 100 million people watched the, the Women's World Cup cricket final. Um, so, yeah, the audience is definitely there, but we need to keep growing it and we need to make sure that I think one of the problems with the media coverage is it tends to be few and far between. So it's very hard for an audience to follow a continuous narrative and really get on board with the sport and become fans in the way, for example, you have with the Premier League. I mean, you know, you, you wake up and every minute of the day, there's something new to find out about the Premier League. Mm. That narrative is there with you the whole time. But with women's football, for example, it's kind of difficult to keep on top of it. You can't watch all of the games. The FA, the Women's FA Cup that's going to be um, played this year, we'll see it on TV from the semi-finals, but not from any earlier round. Yeah, um, and it feels as well, I mean, uh, certainly over here we've had female sports heroes over the years, I mean, there's several of them come to mind, but Katie, obviously, Sonia Sullivan would have been there more recently, the uh, the Irish hockey team, the uh, Cork Gaelic footballers, there's a fairly long list, but in some ways, and it strikes me that maybe it's not so much to do with those heroes, that actually telling the everyday stories of the everyday athletes is kind of the space that we need to be in. I think it's both because I think if you only tell the human interest stories, then you have an issue whereby women's sport can never just be women's sport and it can never just be an amazing goal or an amazing hit. Do you know what I mean? So, and, and it would be for men's sport, but I do agree that the human stories definitely are, in, are engaging in the same way that they are in men's sport. You know, who, who isn't compelled by some terrible, tragic backstory to somebody mm. that then goes on to be a sporting hero. Um, so I think it's both. It was interesting, actually, in the context of what's happened this week. Alex Scott took to Twitter over the course of the weekend saying that haters are going to hate and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and things like that. And it does seem to me, and I know I'm only judging this on social media, which is a very small percentage of public opinion, but the opinion of the value of Alex Scott in a Sky Sports studio is starting to be realised by the greater public. I'm not sure if you'd go along with that, Anna. Oh, God, yeah. It's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> I think, you know, so many people, when they saw that Alex got that role, were kind of dubious. Like, oh, wow, we know why she's there, right? It's a tick box. Um, and it's a double tick box because it's it's a woman of colour. But um, she has absolutely proved that she is, a you know, an amazing pundit. Um, and, and many people feel that her, in, her insight is better than, at times, her male colleagues, even really experienced people like Graham Sooners. I mean, she was teaching him terminology about defence the other day. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I kind of came latish to that story, the Alex Scott story, and I thought that there had been some sort of, as tends to happen in social media, sometimes a bit of a furor about something, and it turns out that people were just being, uh, yeah... Uh, the way people are uh, in relation to women involved in in, uh, in football coverage, and it was only now that I realised that it was just because it was a woman talking about football. Incredible, um, <laughs> Anna. That was uh, that was really good. Best luck with the uh, the competition, and um, I'm sure we'll keep across over the next while. We are involved with twenty by twenty ourselves, and there'll be much more on that over the coming uh, months and years. But for this morning, thanks, William, for joining us. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Anna Castle on the line there in relation to the Investec 20 by 20 uh, Media Awards, new initiative built to recognise excellent in Irish journalism and uh, based on the coverage of women uh, in sport. And Anna will uh, chair that panel that's um, charged with uh, handing out that award. So much more, as I said, on that off the ball, our uh, media partners with the 20 by 20 movement. Darren Cleary is on the way. He's going to bring you up to speed with uh, all that's happening in the world of live sport. But uh, a huge part of our focus, obviously, today is looking ahead to the weekend of rugby. Here's Joe Smith on why Robbie Henshaw uh, isn't starting for Ireland against Scotland tomorrow. Um, it was a bit of both, you know. It's just, it just a, a, a bit of aggravation after after having a knock and a knock on top of a knock and a, a little bit of uh, dead leg bleeding. It does it does make it difficult to to kind of. Uh, it, the problem is he, he maybe he could have played, but if you get another bump on it, it debilitates you pretty quickly, and then maybe you have to make an early change, and then at the same time you've got Chris Farrell sitting in the wings. Uh, Massively um, motivated to get in and, and do his best, uh, I think that's a that's a great opportunity to to invest in Chris. And so did he take part in full part in any of the training sessions this week? Uh, he took a part on Tuesday, didn't train today. It's Joe Schmidt there in conversation with the media during the week about uh, Robbie Henshaw's fitness or otherwise to uh, start the weekend, and I'm sure disappointing for him that he doesn't uh, uh, feature. Probably easy for Joe Schmidt in a lot of ways that he. Um, Takes all guesswork out of it, right? Like he doesn't have to uh, sort of sit down and have a deep and meaningful with Robbie Henshaw about, I'm not starting at 15 today, Rob Carney's back, so that's over, now you're going back to midfield. It's like, ah, oh, well, you're injured, so it's grand. Yeah, it's, it, like, it does complicate the situation further. Do they then revert to Robbie Henshaw again if, if everybody's fit and Rob Carney picks up uh, another knock? It, it's hard to know how to play the situation. Are we closing the door now on this? I don't think so. I mean, I think that uh, what may happen, I'm not sure he's going to start another game at 15 between now and the World Cup, but I think what may happen will be that uh, Rob Carney will obviously be minded, I would think, and um, I think that what will happen will be that probably later in games, if both of them are on the pitch, and depending on what the other options are, Henshaw may end up going back to 15 to fill for 15 or 20 minutes towards the end of a game, which will give him some minutes under his belt, but I can't see... I think that a Carberry, for example, might start at 15 before Henshaw now. Um, it, it may even happen for one of the games of the Six Nations. Do you think so? A Carberry yeah. ahead of uh, Addison, ahead of Larmer? I think so, yeah. It's always been my view that, uh, uh, actually, at the time, Carberry and Henshaw were ahead of anybody else, really, even though they weren't specialised in that position, that actually, when it comes to the crunch, if we're in the World Cup, and Joe Schmidt has a call to make about who he's putting at 15, I don't think he's putting Jordan Larma there. I don't think that... Uh, you know, there are obviously question marks there about uh, the defence and Will Addison hasn't really played enough game time there um, at 15 uh, for me. So I think that Carberry is probably the fast becoming and on the evidence of last weekend option, eh, now? Yeah, but our question, it's like you would wonder what the selection would have been this week had we not lost to England. Would it be different? Like I, I've always been, like as I said at the outset, I, I always think this Murrayfield game is a massive encounter for a multitude of reasons and I don't think it was a game they were going to rotate for that potentially you know, France would be more of a possibility for rotation than Scotland was, which seems like a bizarre thing to say in, yeah. in the context of any Six Nations. And obviously the Italy game pr- uh, provides that opportunity as well. But you know, if we lose this weekend... Here's the thing. Kearney is starting the World Cup at 15. Right? Presumably, There's no conversation even about that now. Right. Well, like, there is a conversation about. There is always a conversation in rugby. If the form he showed a couple of weeks ago, which was probably one of the lowest uh, points of his career, admittedly, uh, 
continues, of course, but none of us expect that to be the case. There's game minutes under his belt a couple of weeks ago, there'll be game minutes under his belt tomorrow and so on and so on, and you assume that he sort of picks up to at least, you know, 70% of where he's at, and if that's where he, where he could be at, and if that's the case, he starts the World Cup at, uh, at 15. So it's really only a case of, like, we're not talking about who's going to start at fullback for Ireland in the World Cup, really, if he's fit. If he's fit. But as we've seen, the injury list can build up very, very quickly. And we've seen that one injury at full-back scuppers us a small bit in that position because we don't have anybody who can get to the same level of game management in terms of uh, defensive running Joey as Joe Carberry might as maybe maybe I agree with you he is first choice but there's absolutely it would be bizarre thinking going into a World Cup uh, that you know we've got our first choice locked down therefore we don't need to worry about it I think we do need oh, to worry listen, about the position and that was the point I was making to Quinny earlier on that like Jesus where we've come from in the last World Cup and the work that Joe Smith has done to create the depth that he has in every single position for us now to realise that actually at 15 and I mean, maybe to a lesser and lessening degree at nine, but certainly at 15, our options are, we don't know what our options are. Like in most other areas of the field, we're having a fairly clear debate about two or three players, which one of them comes in and they're all very strong options. Whereas that one, we're like, every single player we speak about, we say, well, they don't have proper championship minutes under their belt in that position. It's incredible. It really is. Like, you go through the, the full-backs that are playing across the provinces even, and it's, it's not like there was ever a ready-made fix for Absolutely. Rob Carney. Like, is Andrew Conway potentially that option down the line because he's played there for Munster? It's hard to know. Like, the obvious one is going for a former Munster full-back and whether or not they'll actually make a loophole there for Simon Zebo. Like, if Rob Carney goes down in the summer and he's, he's going to win some of the World Cup, then does that option become more of a realistic Zeebo. Yeah. I mean, I don't think so. Like, I, I think as things stand with Rob Carney fifth, there's no way. There's absolutely 0% chance that, they, that this happens. But if he but, goes down, maybe, yeah. I mean, like, if Zebo continues his try-scoring form, obviously, and sort of ends up as the top European try-scorer and the top try-scorer in France, like, the case against becomes, you know, foolhardy at some point, where if we are without a regular full-back... And Quinny was talking earlier about the flair players who have the capacity to pull a defence apart in four seconds flat. Stockdale definitely fits that bill. And obviously Simon Zebo is the other one. But uh, It will be kind of funny, like in Joe Schmidt's last campaign as Ireland manager, after years of working on the out-of-sight, out-of-mind mantra that he names the World Cup squad, including Simon Zebo. But the other thing is, he doesn't have to give a shit about it. Because he's like, it's not as if... I know you were talking about it during the week, but like, it's not as if... It doesn't matter. Like it's, it doesn't need to be consistent. He has no requirement to be consistent whatsoever. It's not part of his remit. Yeah, and also it's not a written rule. It's not like he's breaking a rule. It is just a known sort of notional thing that you're not allowed to play for Ireland if you're, if you're yeah. playing abroad. And it's, it's not like, as I say, it's not like they're, they're breaking a, a law. Not unlike Jim Gavin and Dermot Connolly in that, you know, he's, they're not dissimilar kind of personalities in terms of their... They come with baggage in terms of, you know, they don't always, both of them don't always fully buy into the uh, greater good of the team. They've got very individual, um, I mean, is ego the right word? In a sporting sense, it probably is, um, that they need to fulfil and managers clearly have to, they're wildcard selections is what they are, both of them. Yeah, for sure. Like, I, I think everybody who's involved in the Dublin setup and in the Ireland setup both all have egos as well. 
like just like the the term ego can be construed as like a cockiness or a, a huge sort of. I think it needed to be better than, to than other people. Level. Yeah, but it's, I think there's also kind of a, a sense of if you're going to self improve at, at any level in professional sport or an amateur sport in this case, you probably need a sense of ego. You need a sense of self. You need a sense of where you're going and the direction you're going. So I think that's the case for all of that. I think Jim Gavin's actually spoken about that before. That you know ego doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. There are similarities there which is more of an essential part of what either team can achieve. Well, it depends on the fitness in some of Ireland's positions, I think, if Rob Carney's face, Simon Zebra doesn't get a look in. Yeah. You need an own Shehan-style ego, is what you're saying, like a big old, I'm the man. The, I'm the most humble man in the world, Adrian. <laughs> Nothing like a good old uh, humble ego. Right, um, Darren Cleary's on the way shortly. He's going to tell us what's happening in live sport. We are going to talk you through the newspapers, which we haven't done just yet, apart from that uh, big story in the Murrah this morning, in case you're only just joining us, that uh, Jason Sherlock has left the Dublin football setup. Um, seems like there's some sort of a falling out with Jim Gavin, and that Dermot Connolly is training uh, his way to get back in. So we'll have more on that in just a few minutes' time. But before all of that, uh, we've John Giles talking to Liverpool last night with Nathan. Yeah. Off the pitch, I think that the reaction of um, of, the, of the manager, Klopp, to go to the referee and then explain afterwards in, in, in the newspapers why uh, he didn't understand why the, the referee was biased against him. I didn't think he was biased against him, uh, but the reason he, he gave w- was incredible. I don't think he, he handled himself well after the match at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I That's guess... usually nerves from him, Nathan. That's what I'm trying to point Sorry, I'm trying to point out. That could be nerves from him. Now, if the manager's nervous... Everybody's going to be nervous. So you, you you sense that the players will 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 sense that as well that they're watching Klopp. They've realised what's happened in the game. That actually they were probably quite fortunate to come away with with even a yep. point from West Ham, and that the manager's making excuses. Well, definitely, or his behaviour with them. I I don't know. Now I'm only guessing now. But I'm what I'm saying is that it, I think the the, re, the reaction of Klopp after the match uh, was a show of nerves from him because it it wasn't it wasn't. I couldn't make out mm. what he was doing. There was no sense to what he was doing. He went out and had to go at the referee in the centre circle. Then he had to go at him later on uh, in a match where the referee had awarded a goal for them. That was, that was uh, definitely offside. And the last chance of the game was definitely offside. And he didn't blow for that either. So if you look back at the match, the referee was quite kind uh, to, to uh, Liverpool. Yeah, John will be back again next uh, Thursday night. Darren Cleary, he's back, baby. <laughs> Me. What are the forums saying this morning? I'm sure you've been all over it. I haven't been on to the forums. Did forum you get yourself mixed up with your Yeah, I did, actually. <laughs> He's back. I got excited by Adrian's uh, introduction there. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, pretty you excited. News. I would be excited because, selfishly, you want to see a player of that quality play. He can always offer something. There was a misconception that Dublin had the depth, but two years ago in an All-Ireland final, he dragged us through, through sheer force of will, him coming off the bench at half-time. Uh, change the outlook of the game so I still think he's a, a, a massive influence to have and a really important guy to have and uh, Is there not like made the point last week that if Conor McHugh comes off the bench the guy who's going to mark him will say right I've got a good chance of marking this guy but just the the size of the personality the, the scale of 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 what Dermot Connolly is as a player would be much more intimidating coming off the bench even if he mightn't be at the powers he was two years ago having played minimal football over the last 18 months as our chief pro Dublin spoke uh, and regular spokesperson um, is there not a sense of the 
with the train analogy, it's on the tracks and it's steady along, heading along at a nice, steady kind of sixty kilometres an hour, and it is going to get over the line no matter what happens. And you know, collect that sort of five in a row, and then suddenly there's this little rogue element. There's a party happening in carriage five, and it potentially may derail this entire thing. I don't think the train has ever been smoothly sailing along or going along the tracks with no bother. I think. The All-Ireland Finals have been tight with the exception of last year. I think there's a little bit of recency bias in that it was such a one-sided final. We assume that Dublin have steamrolled teams over the last few years. They haven't. The, the Mayo rivalries were great. The replays were good and was only ever a, a kick or a score between them. I am the most pessimistic Dublin fan because I remember the Jesus, dark days. I remember the bad a job. times. Yeah, but I, How can you be pessimistic now? Because, I mean, they're not blitzing teams, but they're still beating teams consistently. But I got to the age of 22, and I'd only had, we'd only won one All-Ireland in my lifetime. So winning All-Irelands and even getting to finals was this mad thing that you, you couldn't achieve it. It wasn't going to happen. You were so used to being a team that would be pretty what, competitive what, in Leinster. How many All-Irelands are Dublin going to have to win before you forget that? Before you become less pessimistic? You should never forget it. Because I don't, I ten? genuinely believe that it is cyclical. If Dublin have won ten All Irelands in a row, at that point, that's, when you start, that's stupid. That's never happened. <laughs> Listen, I mean, it's, abs- it's not. Let's reconvene in six years' time. We can reconvene in six years. Time. <laughs> they might even win this year. Like they're, they're, the the people who are saying it's nailed on are insane. Genuine insane. No, I'm not having it at all. It's absolutely like. The amount of shite we have to put up with here on Friday, Darren, with Adrian talking nonsense about Dublin and... Ten in a row, you heard it here first, folks. I don't buy it. The, the, the Sherlock thing is one that as well that has had a lot of questions. I don't understand this at all. Um, Jason Sherlock was so eager to get back involved with Dublin, a bit like Desi Farrell. His career ended in a pretty unceremonious way in that he was just stopped being picked when he felt he had mm. something to offer. I think he had a point to prove. I think he's proved that because his introduction from talking to some of the Dublin players, he was instrumental. J.O. is is a persona. He's more than just a, a player and a coach. He is a guy that they looked up to and they would have they would have aspired to be as kids. So having him around and uh, you know we talk about marginal gains, the one or two percent a player like that will give you. I can't understand why he would leave. Like I watched the documentary and I don't know if I'd buy into the. That put a strain on the relationship. Because we I was trying to figure out earlier on, I haven't watched it, was, I can't remember, and I'd have to watch it back, but what was in it specifically that irked Jim Gavin? I, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. And I, Jim Gavin is, has been friends with Sherlock for more than 20 years. They were on that 95 team together. I don't think they would have a relationship that would be put under serious strain that would make Sherlock walk away from something that he really enjoys, something that has been... The main identifier as him as a person has been Jason Sherlock, the Dublin footballer, for the last yeah. few years. So party relations were strained before that, and then this was a tipping point that led to the parting of the ways, says the report. So I don't know what the relationship would have been strained before that. What's going to be very interesting, though, Darren, and this is a question for you, Jim Gavin's going to be asked about this at the weekend. What's but, he going to say? Pretend you're Jim Gavin. So, Jim, what's... Uh, you do that every ju- time you're in anyway, so... <laughs> so, Jim, uh, Jason Sherlock's left the, your backroom team. What happens? He's a volunteer. He volunteers his time, and like any volunteer, he can uh, he can do what he wants with Logi, his time. Yeah, that's a good that's line. what he'll Jesus. say. So the idea that we'll get to the end of so it, would you voluntarily you, uh, have left? The, uh, do you write Jim Gavin speeches? <laughs> I don't write Jim Gavin speeches. Would you, would you voluntarily leave when uh, the greatest achievements in the history of Gaelic football is on the line? No, I wouldn't voluntarily leave, which makes it more interesting. But I can't, for the life of me come to believe that they fell out over a documentary that was so inconsequential. It was... I think that was part of it, maybe. I think, like, if we're taking everything we read here as as fact, like, 
there was a strained relationship before that. And but, but we're not. You're, you're, you weren't actually saying that he voluntarily left. You're saying that he was a volunteer. He was volunteer. That doesn't yeah. mean that he voluntarily left. Well, I doubt you can be a volunteer and be shoved. He's not. He hasn't. Or you can be a volunteer and and walk. To be honest, I don't know. I don't understand the specifics, but something must have happened beyond the documentary because there was nothing in the documentary that would suggest that it would have been any kind of betrayal of trust. I think those players are weird in that they have this odd sense of we are going to be a tight group and we won't say anything. They're some of the most marketable people in Irish sport. I mean, a lot of them should be making a lot of money the only one that's probably capitalised on their potential to earn money from what they do in sport has been Bernard Brogan the rest of them despite their massive sporting success and despite the fact they're pretty marketable people have taken an odd pride in deciding we don't want to earn anything from the brand we've created by being really good and really successful at football I I don't understand it I'm just hoping that the journalists who are present at uh, this game over the weekend push Jim Gavin enough to sort of quality journalists that are down there Darren at this game to sort of get an answer out of Jim Gavin what do you think Owen? Yeah I hope they do too You're there there's a, a, a in a non-journalistic capacity I don't know we'll see are you there in a non-journalistic capacity no I'm, there, there, ticket, I'm there in a journalistic capacity right, okay. <laughs> no, no journalist has ever got an answer out of Jim Gavin Jim will tell you what he wants to tell you and he will not tell us uh, what happened here so we're not going to know it'll be speculate and it'll be a while before the full story emerges you're not a volunteer you're paid to be here to give us your sports bulletin so I will give you the sports bulletin. Ireland hoping to exercise the demons of last week's defeat to England in the Six Nations. Joe Schmidt has made five changes for the clash with Scotland. Four of them have been enforced by injury. Robbie Henshaw was due to start at centre to replace the injured Gary Ringrose. A dead leg has ruled him out. Rob Carney comes in at full back while Chris Farrell takes the place of Ringrose in the centre. Quinn Rue and Jack Conan come in for Devon Toner and CJ Stander. Sean O'Brien replaces Josh van der Fleer. That's the only change that's not the result of an injury. Schmidt says he has faith in the game plan and the personnel and as a result tried to make minimum changes deliberately tried not to change it we've tried to just the last thing you want to do is try to chase the championship going to Scotland against such a tough team we, we have to build our way into the game we can't be chasing things and, and trying to get instant results you've got, to, you've got to earn whatever you get up there because they, they give so little away and, uh, and they work so hard for each other you know, I'd, I'd be really proud of the way they work if, if I was Gregor, and I'm sure he is. Um, so for us, it, it doesn't probably change the mentality too much. We just want to take it one game at a time. We're not going to chase it, uh, uh, a tournament when we've got such a tough task in front of us. Now, the Scotland head coach, Gregor Townsend, has made the surprise decision to drop Blair Kinghorn for the game, something that Joe Schmidt mentioned in his own press conference. Sean Maitland will start on the left wing instead of Kinghorn after passing a late fitness test. Kinghorn scored a hat-trick against Italy last week. Simon Bergnan, Josh Strauss and Johnny Gray come in for Willem Nell, Sam Skinner and Ben Toulis for the match at Murrayfield. The Ireland under-20s hope to make it two wins from two. They take on Scotland this evening. Noel McNamara's side will be looking to build on the 35-27 win over England next time out. Alison Miller back on the wing for the Irish women's match against the Scots it will be the 34 year old's first competitive start since she broke her leg in last year's championship Ireland endured the worst possible start beating, beaten by England 51-7 last week there are already fears for the Cheltenham Festival. Racing in the UK has been cancelled until Wednesday at the earliest due to an outbreak of equine flu. No English horses are allowed travel to Ireland until the situation clears. Racing goes ahead here as normal, starting with this evening's meeting at Dundalk. An expert says that equine flu outbreak, which has brought horse racing to a halt, will be very difficult to stop spreading. Hattie Lawrence is the clinical director at Valley Equine and acts as a veterinary surgeon at Kempton, Sandown and Epsom. 
This is an airborne virus, which means that it doesn't matter how good the yard biosecurity measures might be, how careful people might be about washing their hands, for example, it can still be transmitted from horse to horse just on the air. Now, Greg McDowell is in the mix after the first round of the Pebble Beach Pro-Am in California. The Ulsterman lies three shots off the lead following a four-under round of 68. Brian Gay and Scott Langley tied for top spot on seven-under. Well, the body recovered from the wreckage of a crash plane is that of the Cardiff City striker Emiliano Sala. Sala was travelling to Cardiff in a plane piloted by David Botson, which went missing over the English Channel on the 21st of January. The body was spotted in the wreckage of the plane on Monday, and the authorities were able to recover it two days later. Despite challenging conditions, the Air Accident Investigations Branch said the operation had been carried out in as dignified way as possible, and the men's families have been kept updated throughout. Sala's former club, Nantes, demanded Cardiff City pay the first of the instalment of the 17 million euro transfer fee threatening legal action earlier this week. While Neymar says he did not get the present he wanted for his birthday, he will miss PSG's Champions League tie against Manchester United. The Brazilian suffered a metatarsal injury earlier this month and the French champions say they will take a conservative approach to his recovery. He's going to be out of action for 10 weeks and for his 27th birthday he wished for a new metatarsal. It's just so emotional. I mean, he's not five years old. You can't wish for a new metatarsal. <laughs> Everything about that story is just odd. His weird birthday where everyone had to wear red, sponsored by Red Bull. Mm. Everyone's wearing red. He's got a Red Bull pin. People are standing there posing with pictures of that energy drink. I wonder, does, is he going to take like, his broken metatarsal, put it under his pillow and wait for the metatarsal fairy to come along and actually collect the metatarsal, replace it with a new one? Hanley's first name? Dermot. Dermot. Right. There's a slight difference actually there, Dermot yeah. and Dermot. 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 Nathan Murphy is not allowed for in the poll that he's put up. Yeah, sorry, go on, yeah. Which is, do you call him Dermot Connolly or Dermot Connolly? Well, obviously Dermot. Dermot, his name is Dermot. But when you went for Dermot? But that's different pronunciation on the exact same thing. Yeah. It's not Dermot, his name's not Dermot. Oh, this thing really grinds my gears, the way a lot of people, and I, like a lot of people from, from your neck of the woods, Darren, Oof. guess the name, just decide to go Irish on names that aren't Irish, or vice versa. Like the name Kieran, for example. Like people, uh, when Kieran is spelled with a K, I often hear people from Dublin refer to that as Kieran. Which is just not the case. Like it's uh, it's Kieran Kil- Is it Kieran Kilkenny or is it Kieran Kilkenny? You know. I think he's Kieran Kilkenny. But he's is this what grinds your gears? Yeah. Kieran yeah, Kilkenny well, went to my school. Was an all Irish. Yeah, but so he, he's always Kieran Kilkenny. Exactly. He's a Kieran. Whereas if his name was spelled like it's Kieran Donaghy, and if some, I hear some people call him Kieran Donaghy, which is just stupid. Anyway, that is stupid. That makes no sense. Darren, thanks, million on that note. Thank you very much. Holmes outrage. No, we leave it there for the minute. Uh, loads more to come. We're going to tell you what's happening in the back page. It's going to be a little bit more conversation about Dermot Dermo. Jeremid, whatever you're having yourself, and uh, just a few minutes. But before that, the hurling show with our chief nerds, Shane Stapleton and Michael Verney, returned yesterday, and our brand new Gaelic football show also made its debut this week. Uh, Owen was on it. Here he is talking about Mayo in 2019. I do think Mayo still have all their parts in order from two years ago. The question is, how quickly do they come back? They haven't had any retirees from 2017. The big question for me is midfield. But I've, I've, I've got no worries about Dermot O'Connor, who I think could be in with an all-star year. Uh, and I know that we all kind of have the, the cute image of him almost dying in Newbridge last year. Got and tired we're, watching him. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's just going to be uh, kind of a sign of things to come this year for Dan. So, so I'm a little bit worried about midfield because of the injuries, the, the injury to Tom Parsons. And I don't think Shami O'Shea will come back to that level. That it could be a completely new midfield of Vaughan and Dermot O'Connor. And the big question, and I, I was very encouraged with his performance at the weekend, was Andy Moran. And you look at Keith Higgins as well, mm. still flying. Obviously, Lee Keegan's still going to be flying. Is, is Colin Boyle going to get to that level? They're the three, Higgins, Boyle and Andy Moran. If the three of them get back to 2017 level, Mayo can win the All-Ireland. Um, we did flag that up as our chief nerds, and then had yourself and Tommy going at it. What, chief slackers? Fair enough. What are you going to call us? Or are we the opposite of nerds? Uh, the Hurling and Gaelic Football Show, uh, back on your screens this week, and we'll be with you every Wednesday and Thursday at half twelve and three o'clock, respectively, so do tune in for that. The Hurling nerds getting sick in the football is a thing to behold. It's a shame. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's miraculous. I don't think you can quite comprehend the levels of tactics and intuition that goes into the game of football. The mindless sport of hurling really is more uh, suited to, to people like him. You'll never hear me, you'll never have, you, there'll be no evidence of me sneering about football, is what he said to me during the week. It's a challenge that at some point when I have a spare hour in my life, I'm going to um, try and meet, because I'm sure he sneers at everything, bar yeah. hurling. So uh, I mean, I'm sure it's a very, very disrespectful man. Yeah. Uh, all right. Keep your comments coming in. There's loads on YouTube. None of which is always we can read out to you. I think generally, and um, feels coming in as well. So we'll bring those your way in a few minutes' time. We're also going to have a little bit more conversation about that Derwin Connolly um, arrival or return, I should say, and um, Jason Sherlock's departure as well from the Dublin footballer. So any thoughts on that? We'd love to hear from you. It's just nine o'clock on this Friday morning, um, and we're going to let you know what's happening because it's we're an hour and fifteen, and I haven't had an opportunity to let you know what's on the back pages of the newspapers today. We're going to kick things off with the Irish. Times here, as you can see, a photograph of uh, the Irish front rows going at it in training yesterday. Schmidt looking at the positives of a much changed Ireland team, writes Jerry Thornley here. Um, the Ireland scrum failed to push when it came time to shove, writes a critical Liam Toland in his column there. And uh, Jack Conan saying, I feel like I'm at the peak of my powers. We heard from Quinny earlier saying that uh, his opportunity. Uh, has come and we'll see if he can take that that's Jack Conan in the Irish Times in the Irish Independent meanwhile Schmidt stands by Class Murray and Sexton this is the Class's permanent line from the press conference uh, during the week which I mean it's a go-to for most coaches when your um, star quarterback is showing a bit of a dip in form you know I'm all about the American football analogies these days comparisons and uh, you know Class is permanent bit of a blip I wonder in a way are we should we be encouraged by their performance last week? No. It was as bad a performance from uh, the Murray and Sexton partnership as we've seen that surely it just can't be as bad as that again. And also, it would be way worse if we were sitting there and it's like, oh God, Ruff's getting hockeyed by England and everyone played really well. We are therefore an inferior team to this England team. Whereas the underperformance by our two, two of our best players is a real kind of ray of hope in a fairly dark week. I think like the fact of the matter is, Sexton hasn't really like played much top-level rugby in this calendar year up until last weekend, and Conor Murray's coming off the back of a prolonged injury. Yeah, the calendar year is very young, I would point out, but the other thing is that... It's been um, big European games. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure I go fully along with that, that uh, if all of our players... The thing about this current Irish team is that if the point that you made about if our players do play up to a certain standard we're, we, there isn't anybody who'll hockey us that's the mark of this current team um, so I'm not sure I'll go with that but uh, I mean it's interesting logic would you be saying that about a Kerry team who sort of didn't show up and got beaten and the 
You know, yep. midfielders were... Well, absolutely I would. You'd be saying... Absolutely, I would 100% be saying... Hey, this is the, thing. the best thing that could have happened to us. There, there is a lot of comfort in the underachievements. Or, not, or in the underperformance, sorry, not in the underachievement, in the underperformance. There is a comfort in that, knowing that there has to be better days ahead yeah. if your team gets the best out of itself. Just assuming that, look, I don't know, I th- here's the thing. What about the hysteria and all that stuff? Ireland are going to get better before the World Cup. There's no way they continue flatlining in the lead into the World Cup. That just won't happen, primarily because uh, a lot of the opposition will be playing and be shite, and uh, you can get your confidence up that way. Nobody expects that. It's just whether, in an overall sense, we've already peaked. That's the concern, really, when you boil it down. 2018 was our year. If the World Cup had happened then, we would have a right shot at it, but that was the peak. So we're back to where we were overachieving an unbelievable group of players, extremely well coached, overachieving, and now we've come back to normal level of achievement, which on an off day, last weekend can happen, on, and on most days, you're sort of there or thereabouts, but not where we were in 2018. And I think that's people's concern. And it's, I think that's real and fair. Can it be possible that we have peaked last year and also go on to do something special enough in the World Cup? Not if we peaked last year, I don't believe, no. Because if that was our peak... And it was good enough to be... You think we need to be at that level to get to a World Cup final? Absolutely, yeah. 100%. I'm not, I'm not necessarily we, disagreeing with you. we also have to count for most other teams peaking for the World Cup. Yeah. So, like, you have to assume that South Africa and Australia and France and England are going to be playing at a level above themselves. So that's where we'll... we'll us being ourselves ain't going to get it done in my book. No, I don't think... I think we can be a little bit below our peak from 2018 to get to a World Cup semi-final. And I think the same goes for winning that semi-final. Mm. Like, obviously, if we played last Saturday's level, then you know, we're getting knocked out. We're getting yeah. knocked out in the quarterfinal. What I'm saying is, I don't question. think we will. I think we'll play. Yeah, but I, I think that the All Blacks will beat us if we're any way off last year's level. I believe that any other team in the world, yeah, we can drop down a little bit from last year's level and still give any other team in the world a match. I mean, yeah, I think we're talking about percentages now, but yeah, like, no, we are a couple of steps off. Fair enough. Where we were last weekend, the All Blacks tear us a new one. Oh, without question. But we won't get to the All Blacks if we play like that last weekend. We won't get past the quarter. Unless we come second in our pool, of course, and they destroy us in the quarterfinal. Exactly, yeah, right. The show goes on. Is the other story here in the Irish Independent. This is about the British runners barred from Ireland. Racing goes on here. Michael Varney had some interesting things to say about it on the uh, hurling show yesterday that um, he's not sure it's the wisest thing to do, but I ain't no expert when it comes to that, that's for sure. And you just assume that uh, the HRI and everybody that's involved is making the best decisions for everybody. Uh, But the show goes on here... um, it says in the Irish Independent, and GPA to receive an extra uh, three hundred and thirty-nine grand under deal with the GEA. So this was the an offshoot of the financial report that came out from the GEA during the week, and um, they made loads of money. And as a consequence of that, the GPA have landed themselves a bit of a windfall. The Times Ireland edition here is uh, Tig Furlong, and uh, defeat meant a lack of sleep for Schmidt. Uh, coach questioned himself after the loss to England. Um, Rides Gary Doyle here. Boost for bid to host the 2030 World Cup. This was a story that's appeared in a few of the newspapers today that um, the FAI, along with the English FA, the Welsh FA, Scottish FA and Northern Irish, uh, the FA of Northern Ireland met in Rome yesterday to discuss the possibility of bidding for the World Cup in 2030. And it seems like FIFA would be keen to send it back to Europe. And interestingly enough, I don't know, have you read the story? Uh, I've been following it, yeah. Like this Theresa May has given her thing. sort of backing uh, the, so, a So you bit. would think England could go on their own, right, would be your sort of perception that they've got enough. Outside of the voting rigmarole. Bigger World Cup, though. But as a, from a grand's point of view, they still probably cope with it. Anfield and Old Trafford currently would not be able to host World Cup games. Why so? 
What do you think? Too old? No. They don't have enough runoff area for photographers. I mean, That's mad, isn't I it? I mean, they'll fix it, but I'm just saying, as things stand. Uh, also, Belfast has no ground that's capable of hosting a game at the minute, so I don't know how all that would work out. Yeah, we've heard that before, that it would be uh, an Ireland and the UK bid, except Northern Ireland wouldn't be included whatsoever, because, as you said, they don't have the grounds to do it. But we would only have two, right? We'd only have the Aviva and we'd have Crow Park. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Uh, like Brexit something, something, something. I'd like to... What, what, what is it, 11 years away? Will, will A very old Neymar on that... Parky Queef surface could be quite a hilarious well, if sight. If you get a new metatarsal for Christmas, well, I mean, the Parky Queef will put pay to that metatarsal. <laughs> um, and yeah, the other thing obviously is about with Five Nations uh, hosting, who out of those five is going to be the teams that get to automatically qualify? Well, that's the question that uh, the, the current Euros situation has had to, to deal with as well. So anyway, that's that. The Irish Examiner then, meanwhile, bouncing back is the story here. That's Chris Farrell in as Schmidt insists New Look Ireland uh, ready to get up off the canvas. A quick run through the rest of the newspapers. The back page of the mirror has a story of the morning out and in. Jason Sherlock is out of the Dublin backroom team and it looks like Jim Connolly is on his way back. He's training with St. Vincent's and he's doing one-on-one sessions with Brian Cullen. It's Pat Nolan's exclusive on the back of the Irish Daily Mirror. The back of the Herald is We've Got the Bottle. Alison says Liverpool wants to prove a point and you've got Irish racing all clear as Britain in lockdown. And the rest of the newspapers basically this morning leading with that story. The Irish Daily Star goes with Deja Flu. British racing in 170 million euro shutdown. Business as usual for the sport in Ireland. The back page of the Irish Daily Mail then goes with lockdown. Racing in Britain cancelled for six days after a horse flu outbreak. Uh, probably tab of the morning to you this morning is on the back of the sun. Apocalypse nay. Racing set to lose millions, says the story on the back of the sun. And the front page of the Racing Post is <coughs> actually going with this as well. Lockdown is their headline as well, much like the Irish Daily Mail. British racing forced into shutdown, but the show goes on in Ireland. And then finally, a couple of the UK back pages. The Guardian goes with equine flu crisis widens. Biggest closure since foot and mouth ravages racing. And the front page of the Daily Telegraph sports section is racing in crisis. No meetings until Wednesday after equine flu outbreak. 100 stables in lockdown as the five-day shutdown begins. A lot of support for your uh, Kieran versus Kieran. Thank you. Carry on. Thank you. It's just just correct. You know, it really annoys me. And I'm not going to name names here. There are people in this parish. There are people in this parish. And I, I just almost punch the radio or whatever I'm watching. Who you know? I want to say what medium they're on and off the ball. <laughs> whenever I, <laughs> whenever, whenever I fear you've just outed yourself, out of myself or the person I'm talking about. Yeah. When I hear them refer to a Kieran as a Kieran, it really it, it pisses me off so much. I mean, I uh, yeah. I mean, I think you might have issues if it pisses you off a lot. But you know, there we go. Aldrin Gallagher. Um, Says, brilliant, Owen. I remember the New Zealand game in November and the RTE commentator calling him Kieran Reid. <laughs> well, the other, well the, I, was, I thought he was going to go another way there. People say Kieran Marmion. What the hell are you playing at? It's Kieran Marmion. Yeah. Like, look at the name of his spe- look, look at how it's spelt. How is that Kieran? It's Kieran. Uh, I'm sorry, like, it's. I thought he was going to go a different way there because I have heard Marmion. Uh, <laughs> Kieran Reid is hilarious, obviously. I'm willing to stay silent and let you go because this is... Well, that's all I have to really say. It's it's a very simple thing. One is called Kieran. One is called Kieran. One is spelt in English, Kieran. One is spelt in Irish, Kieran. It's very simple. We're going to talk Dermot Connolly's return to Dublin, Jason Sherlock's departure, and uh, Kerry 09 versus Dublin 18. That's coming your way in the next few minutes. Uh, Jerry Gilroy is going to join us and shoot it, get stuck into all of that, get your comments coming into us. But before that, an interesting nugget from Carlos Paul Broderick uh, last summer about Jail's NFL-style play calling for the Dubs. What about this?
So they might have a call. You'll always try and identify calls. Um, you know, uh, we played Dublin last year, and I never heard as many calls. As, really? You know, yeah. I, was, uh, I was baffled by the amount of calls that they had. And what are the calls? What but, was Stephen Cluxon saying? Um, well, they were numbers. Uh, I remember Jason Sherlock running onto the field. A lot of them were numbers. Um, and to be honest with you, like you know, there's still it's there's still a 15 players in the field who can only set up in X amount of different formations. But it was the way in which you call it out. Uh, allows them to kind of maybe confuse their opponent for a little bit longer and they probably change those names every game so I can't say which it's just maybe when you identify one that has been a consistent pattern that if the coach notices it he says it but just as often as was we're a kind of an age and experienced team in many ways and um, you know you might have a player in the field who notices something and the word just spreads so it changes that's all just one last question on that Dublin Calls thing because it, like, I haven't heard that before so Sherlock's running onto the pitch and is he shouting a number to Cluxon or is he giving Cluxon a, a no generally this could be across the middle of the pitch so even okay. I was standing at 11 for some of that game and uh, you know I heard calls uh, 44 different calls like this and they obviously mean something mm. um, now for us like so for I don't know whether they were for their own kickout or for the opposition kickout. It de- it depended. So sometimes it was a, there was a call when they had a kickout. Sometimes it was a call when when we had a kickout. But the large amount of them were for how they attacked our kickouts. Um, because I suppose for for Cluxon's kickouts we dropped back at the time. So um, you know they didn't need to they, they could kick the ball to the nearest man. He was free. So a lot of it was for how they were approaching our kickouts. Jared, good morning to you. How are you doing? If I'm listening to that and I'm Owens crew over there, or a Mayo, or a Toronto Donegal. I'm pretty encouraged for the year ahead. That Jay's gone. Yeah. Well, the thing is, we don't know if Sherlock was coming up with those instructions himself. What, what was interesting to me about that, like it's interesting now in the context of, of this now, but at the time when I was discussing that with Paul Roderick, it was the idea that in game they're getting instructions into Cluxton. Like we always think that Cluxton just surveys, kind of like Tom Brady, he surveys what's going on in front of him and then just makes a decision on that. Now, of course, Brady goes back to the sideline quite often, as we saw in the Super Bowl last week. But clearly, Dublin have this constant carousel. Of and he was the one jail every game you saw in and off, in and off. But the that, that's in his runner capacity. His actual coaching capacity was as a forwards coach. Mm. So that's what I'm trying to say. I don't think. But you don't think he was in? He was surely on the pitch delivering instructions, he, either he of his own making or by who else, whoever else is. I doubt they were. I, I doubt they were all from Jason Sherlock's making. Maybe. A very small amount would have been, but to Stephen Cluxton, I don't think he's coming up with those. So, like as much as I'd like to overstate how big this loss is going to be from a Stephen Cluxton point of view, I don't think that those instructions were coming from Sherlock himself. It's going to have an impact on Dublin, no matter what, right? Like if you've got a coach who's so involved, he's the attack coach and he's coming up with plays and he's a part of the person that's coming up with these basketball plays or whatever it is. Not an insignificant part, no matter what way you shape it. Um, it well, if that work's already done and they've, they've like so they've sucked yeah. him dry with his information, and now comes Paul Clark and they're going to add him to the, the mix and it's like it's the progression because like ultimately what do we think what do we think is the most important part of the Dublin setup right if you think about it what is the single most important part of the Dublin setup it has to be Jim Gavin mm. he is the one who put this coaching ticket in place he's the one who decides what players come or go and he's the one who ultimately is responsible for dictating the style of play so he brings coaches in like, and I would say Jim Gavin is talking to a lot of other coaches from other mm. sports and stealing ideas and looking at stuff and going, oh, I like a little bit of what you're doing. Like, we know Jim Gavin is into American football. We know that he was into uh, looking at the 
the routes, the routes that the wide receivers run and kind of seeing, and I presume that's where like a lot of that came from. Jay, was the basketball stuff and the basketball stuff reached its apogee versus Tyrone in the semi-final in 2017 when like I'd never seen the V formation that they were using and the kind of ball retention and kind yeah. of the midfielders. There was one point in that game where the two midfielders were in the left corner. The Both of them were like 15 metres apart. Mm. Like not accidentally. You know, they didn't wander there. It was pre-programmed. They were a little less like that in 2018 possibly because they had to be a little bit less like that because there was no real challenge and they, it didn't seem to me like they got up for any of the challenges in 2018 um, so look I don't know I, I can't believe that they fell out over the documentary which is um, in we were trying to story. recall what actually I mean having seen it I can't, there was nothing to stop me at the time that I thought Jesus he's really revealing some in-depth information here yeah I can't remember I know there's definitely been a sense that um the Dublin players wouldn't write books while they were still playing. Mm. Philly obviously wrote his, but there's not, not to do with football. No football in no. it. So that was like a his kind of look. I'm going to do this. It's not about football, but um, maybe maybe it's just too much attention ahead of the five in a row. Maybe. But isn't this I, isn't this because like we were just saying earlier on? Actually, this is this brings attention like in a way that actually Sherlock staying on doesn't. Well, um, we, it's is this the really. Is it really that surprising when you take into account the suggestion that there was nobody voluntarily put forward from Dublin for commercial media events at the start of the year? That maybe there's just a clampdown on any sort of stepping out of line at all. And I'm not saying he stepped out of line, I'm just saying any sort of unnecessary exposure on one individual in the yeah, camp. Yeah, yeah. although like, I don't think people think of J.O. as a coach in the backroom team of the current Dublin setup. I think people think of Jason Sherlock as a 1990s phenomenon who reinvented himself in the early 2000s as a different type of footballer and now has had an interesting and varied life. And that was a human interest story as opposed to this is the backroom coach um, of the team. I, I'm surprised because, to me, it looked like he was being groomed to be the successor at some point down the line. Now, um, Jim did sign a new deal or agree a new deal over the winter, mm. so perhaps there was a sense that his time wasn't going to be for much longer down the line, and it's okay, I'm, not, I'm actually not willing to be second string for three or four years. This is pure, pure speculation, obviously, because we're in the realms of speculation until... I'd love to know what had happened. Actually, is one thing. Was it was this a thing that happened at the back end of last year, or is this because that would because what you're saying suggests that almost Jim Gavin had some sort of a plan that so it, what you're saying actually suggests that it wasn't so much to do with whatever was in the documentary or his book that actually this was a strategical thing by Jim Gavin that um, I, I mean remove so, him out. I, so I, I'm not. I'm saying that I think that there's a point where um, Jason Sherlock might have thought that. Uh, he was going to get the big job in 18 yeah. months or, or at the end of the five in a row or whatever and then it becomes clear that you're not and you're like okay well am I willing to dedicate all this time and effort and resource uh, of my life at a very important stage of my life you know like um, just finished his MBA change of career all that kind of stuff in the background uh, am I willing to do that voluntarily and not be the five manager? in a row yeah but you're, you're like I know we all say everybody there's a lot of success to go around but like how much of that giant backroom team in Dublin can you actually name I was looking at it earlier on so probably a few of them but anyway that I, can, I can name the press guy and I can name Brian Cullen and Declan like, Darcy Declan Darcy like, and how much credit do you give those guys when it comes to is the first thing you go to when Dublin win five in a row Jesus but he, but that Jason was the best Sherl- backroom team of all time lads I think, uh, I think none of those by the way Jason Sherlock is the first person you name when you think about that and also like the so when he was there you, you just mentioned earlier on and I wanted to come back to it about the what he brought to the team and that maybe at some point or another that was rung dry and it moves on it's to suggest that he wouldn't have had he, 
he would definitely have had the capacity to... Oh, totally, yeah. Like, like, he's somebody... If we're talking about somebody who watches American sport and feeds into that, like, obviously, he's somebody who does that. And he would definitely have had the capacity to change the game plan, understand that, actually, teams have got to grips with this thing of... Like, Kieran Donnelly spoke about a few years ago. Whether this was coming from Sherlock or not, um, Mark Ingle was the guy that Owen name-checked earlier on. But the sort of ball retention, so we get to a certain stage, you know, the pre-basketball, pre-shot clock basketball, where we get to a stage, we advance up the pitch, get to a certain point, can't find a gap, just hold on to the ball for two minutes until we find the gap and then go. So what I'm saying is if he comes in and is part of a team and I think a pretty central part of a team that introduces those sort of innovations, he isn't just going to do that and then rest on it. No, no. And, and sorry, I'm not suggesting that, um, that he was incapable of changing, but Jim might have felt like need a new voice. Clark has been there taking the under-21s, taking them in the O'Byrne Cup, getting beat in the O'Byrne Cup final. Not a black mark on his, uh, it turns out, on his CV. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I, I do, there, there's also just a possibility that there was a clash of personalities at the end of it, that they'd spent mm-hmm. enough time together. You know, they've, been, they've obviously known each other f- since the 90s. It's a, it's a funny end to a relationship which was clearly successful. In sport, frequently that happens. Like, and, you know, it's up to the manager to pick his backroom team. So, um, the timing could feel weird as well. But I don't think this is a recent development somehow. I think it's a recent development in the public sphere. Mm. Well, there there had been some suggestion, you know, he was on the sideline against Monaghan. Somebody, like, so, people were spotting that when they were up there. And so we, like it, we, we did a bit of work on this story three weeks ago, was it? Three weeks ago? Three weeks ago, after yeah. the first game. And, um, and we're checking, like, when everybody comes back every year. Everybody doesn't come back at the same time. Like, That's the thing, so you we know. couldn't be sure. Um, and so at the time we thought that, because he'd been back late previously and other, other management team members have been back late previously so it didn't look like it was yeah. a big deal and so let's see you know I mean shite for him isn't it it was the one thing that I thought like just the, the, the thing main thing actually struck me from the documentary outside of his personal story was how the Fisher was the word I used earlier on had um, been there for him post his playing days now it didn't end the way he would wanted. He would have wanted it to and it definitely seems um, like we're all saying we're not sure exactly what happened here but it seems like as if this is going to be another thing where he's like oh, Jesus Christ maybe yeah have to end that way yeah maybe now, I mean before they do the ten in a row <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, if you know, I like. I think he's got uh, a very strong shout of being a Dublin manager into the future. I also think that if you are the manager of any other county in Ireland, yes, you're like yes, you're straight on phone going. Absolutely. So the mileage uh, the, <laughs> to, to Mullingar. Oh, I'm, I'm more thinking Newbridge here, but a hundred percent. Yeah, you are right. Like, in. Yeah, definitely. Treason, though, isn't it? Like, well, Jay, Stephen Rochford. Sherlock is still a dull. Stephen Rochford. I, I don't have I enough fingers to count the carry men who've managed outside their county. No, but uh, in terms of beaches, okay, but they all, they all this went is to, very different. I mean, this is very different. Sorry, uh, the, the rational thing I was trying to do is compute in my head what, what you're actually talking about there. This is completely different. The dubs are, are a very individual case of how state secrets actually matter. We haven't a notion what's actually going on here, how they've actually got to this place, the, the secrets within the Dublin camp. Uh, uh, what's so secret? But, I don't know. Car, you tell me. You keep the sense of secrets we don't know. I don't know. Come on. If, like, I knew what the secret? secrets were. I've been telling you what the secrets were. It's your best yeah, Jason Sherlock. Position. And the Stasi. <laughs> what's happening? I don't know. You J- tell me. <laughs> Jason Sherlock knows the secrets to, to how Dublin operate. And but that's not... What I, like, if we're talking about him going... For, like, I'm talking about Westmead, right? Whatever. But, like, if he goes to Westmead, he's not going in and going, this is what we did with Dublin. He's going... Like, that point about the innovation he's going with, I'm working with a different set of players I don't for a second imagine he would go to a Kerry or a Mayo or one of the contenders I mean maybe even a Kildare 
I don't really believe he would. Kildare would be a great show. Keen O'Neill with Jason Sherlock. Keen O'Neill as somebody who's worked in a third-level institution himself is an academic, I guess you could say, uh, and all that sort of thing. He is just like Jim Gavin in terms of being a sponge for information. is open to a wide range of ideas. And uh, a Jason Sherlock-Keen O'Neill partnership could be the very thing that the Leinster Championship needs to survive beyond three years' I mean, time. I mean, okay, okay. He's not... He's not as it, he's not playing for them and he's not bringing Daniel Flynn home from America so like come on well, it's he, still going to be 15 point spread <laughs> when those two, two teams play I, matter, I don't know give it tr- I said give it three years you could put but you could put a coaching ticket of Jim McGuinness Mickey Hart uh, uh, Mick O'Dwyer at, at his peak in charge of the, the pick of Leinster at the moment and give it three years <laughs> give it three years give it three years I, mean, I don't know how to keep the ball like I don't know how to keep the score to 15 points I'm telling you to, uh, 2022 you'll all be saying uh, Owen well, told you so well I mean maybe we're going to end up with a five team championship rest of Leinster Dublin Kerry Mayo and Ulster and you just play all the games in Parky Cueve with no cork involved yeah perfect um, now Kieran Donaghy was physically and metaphorically stroking his chin in the Irish Daily Star this morning and sort of musing as to take it away on you got was he physically him. stroking his chin ah, as well why not yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the best of enemies he says ahead of the game in Trulli tomorrow night uh, Kerry against Dublin in the Allianz League he brings up a very interesting point he says that if we hammered them by 17 points in 2009, you'll remember that as the start of the week's game. I think we had our best team since the Mikko era, a point I personally agree with. He says then you could lose yourself in a daydream about a clash between the Kerry team of the late noughties and the current Dublin side. That would be some battle. It would be very hard to call. The Tyrone team of the noughties would put it up to them too. So, of course, Tyrone being the second best team of that particular decade. Uh, Kerry... Uh, Who is supposed peak. to be the left cornerback? Oh, Johnny Cooper centre-back. Right, OK. So, uh, we'll start with Kerry here. Uh, Shouldn't anybody. they be switched around? Shouldn't Johnny Cooper where we sent her back in or something <laughs> well we, we've had this we're, we're, we're going by jersey so. number yeah. uh, alright okay so will we start with the dubs from last year so we've got Stephen Cluxton uh, we've got Keanu Sullivan Philly can, Mappan, I, can I make a just to interrupt the, uh, and if we're going to do this properly right the 2017 dubs were better than the 2018 dubs aren't they well we, we, went, we went on he the basis current. he said I know, current I know so I know I know but, yeah, but we can't change the rules of the game here Jared, we should we should we should do this right if we're going to do it at all and I think it's worth doing and I also think that obviously obviously Banco's ghost is missing here the best team of this century so far is probably the dubs but Tyrone are second and we well, all know that that's, we all know that's that the most nonsensical thing that's ever been said look at that team look at that team how can you say that's not the best team of the last decade they were the positions that they started by the way they weren't short numbers that was the positions that started in the Ireland okay for anybody who's listening let's just go through the team so it's Stephen Jack McCaffrey Johnny Cooper John Small Brian Fenton James McCarthy Brian Howard Conor Callahan Niall Scully Paul no 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 go through the carry team uh, okay, let's go through the Kerry team for the radio listeners. Uh, Dermot Murphy in goals. Full back line of Mark O'Shea, Tommy Griffin, Tom O'Sullivan. Half back line of Tomas O'Shea, Mike McCarthy, Killian Young. Midfield of Darrow O'Shea and Seamus Scanlon. Half forwards are Paul Galvin, Declan O'Sullivan, Ty Kennelly, and Cullen Cooper, Tommy Walsh, Darren O'Sullivan in full forward line. You've also got Kieran Donaghy coming off the bench there. Uh, he didn't start the 2009 All Ireland final. That's an outrageously good Kerry team. David Moore and Ed Domani on the I- bench as well, by the way. Uh, David Moore in there as well and Aidan O'Mahony um, I've got no problem uh, so admitting I'm, okay the, the, there's issues here right so it's the end of Darrow O'Shea it's the very start of Killian Young it's the start of Tommy Walsh it's um, it's the end of Tom O'Sullivan so 
Are you, are you tell I, me okay? Why. Well, okay. First of all, let's just uh, let's just address the thing at the, the, very, the very last thing you said. Who got mad at the match in the 2009 All Ireland Football Final? Was it Tom Sullivan? Tom Sullivan. Got Grand, mad. This, so let's, this, this is not. This, just that again, within the rules of the game, right? This is not actually about a man for man. How many players in that team would you put in the other team? It's he's asking Who'd the question about which is exactly the better team. Yeah. Fair enough. But uh, what we what we accidentally do when we go, what's the best team of that decade versus the team of that decade? We pick the, the players and put them in at their peak. So, like, Tyrone didn't have Peter Callaghan at his peak in that decade. The, it was, like, the end of the 90s that he was... The, maybe, maybe in 03 he was still at his peak, was he? Closer, closer than he was in 05. We can admit to that. Yeah, that yeah, much. yeah. Okay, so maybe... I don't know. Do you, have, but, do you have to pick one team from one year to go to be the representative of that team of the decade? I, I, I think team of the decade is kind of like a, a continued greatness. Yeah, the, everybody at their peak powers in the decade. But anyway, that's, that, that's a conversation it's, we're having. Lads, no, no, back, back, but no, no, it's not because like so, Killian Young ends up being, I would say, a brilliant Kerry footballer. Is yeah. he is he as good in '09? Like, are you sticking? Stick the dumb team back up. Are you sticking? Killian uh, Young in 2009 is very close to his peak. See, I don't know. Uh, Mike McCarthy had come back. He played brilliantly that year. He Michael Darrell, Bernard Brogan. Like, it's really the basis of that 15 versus the other 15, give or take whoever was on the bench that day. And, like, isn't the case that that Dublin team, that Kerry team underachieved, right? Yes. If we're talking about team versus team. That Kerry team could and should have done a four in a row. Kerry group underachieved, whereas <laughs> this <laughs> that Dublin... should have been a four in a row winning Kerry team. Well, this, who beat them? Well, they, after being, without question, the better team in the 2008 All Ireland final, they slipped up to Tyrone. And that—that that is the key difference here between that Kerry team own. and this Dublin team is that that Kerry team had the potential to slip up. I, I, like, I'm, I'm going to say something here about the Dublin team, and I mean this in the best way possible. They are an extremely well-coached behemoth of a team. And as John Mitchell said last week, Ireland have the possibility to board a shit out of teams in rugby. This Dublin team have the exact same potential to do that in football. If but that game took place, Dublin would board a shit out of. It's Kerry not about who's boring. That Kerry not. team is better. So, but right, Barry wrote what? Winning games. That's like, wrong, beat them. Uh, there is a, there is a difference. So if you put the Dublin management team, the, the huge spectrum, half of the population of the county in the Kerry oh, backroom team, Connor. The, the level of high performance, the level of tactical intuition, that Kerry team is one of the great teams of all. Hang on a second. Everything that you say about this debate starts with if, or what if, or an if, and, or but. And that's not okay, really what's happening here. The two things so, like, actually, isn't, isn't the biggest thing about the debate between those two teams that Dublin have put a gulf between themselves and everybody else that's there? I'm not saying by way of results, because obviously some of the finals they've crept over the line, but they've beaten those teams consistently in a way that Kerry haven't, is point one. And point number two is, who, who's better, the Mayo team from 16-17, who that Dublin team were beating, or the Cork team from 07-09? Who would win in a match between those two? May would hammer them. So hammer them. Ah, come here. Isn't that? Isn't that? End, isn't that the end of story? I, I, no, it's May, not. May beat it's them well. Not the end of story. May beat them well. For, for Have the you looked at that team? It's the Tyrone. Tyrone is the is the issue. Tyrone is the issue for that carry team that you can never recover from. Tyrone didn't flukily, you know, uh, somehow steal an All Ireland from Kerry. They had their number and they beat them again and again and again when it mattered. And even Armagh beat them. Armagh, who had a lifetime of choking in Croke Park and were was it one eight two points down they come along with the greatest ever team and had missed a penalty the best, the best ever like, what team. the hell like the, Kerry, so Kerry, Kerry how, how can you say that the Kerry team is, move vastly underachieved 
is better than a, a the greatest football. A double that's team. how good they are. The that is how good they are. That's even not how good they are. They didn't Terry achieve. Terry were playing in, think, playing in the era of the greatest ever Armagh team and the greatest ever Toronto team. Dublin are playing in the achieve. era of the greatest ever Dublin team and they no other team has their greatest And they were beating team. teams that are lesser than the teams that Dublin are beating now. Like the, Kerry were playing in the in the era of <laughs> superpowers. Multi, I, I said it as a multitude of things. Tyrone and Armagh with their best ever teams. True. But for all we know, Mayo and Donegal and Tyrone and Kerry could be some of the greatest teams of all time but we're never going to see it's not, the best, team. It's not it. the best Mayo team uh, of all time uh, who else did he say there it's Donegal clearly not the best Toronto the team of all time hmm? uh, all did beat the dubs yeah but what I'm saying is that Owen is saying that the level of opposition now isn't up to it and I'm actually saying the very opposite of that I, I do think Donegal should have won three in a row in uh, 2012, <coughs> 2013, 2014 classic Kerry bias it is classic Kerry yeah, bias it is totally but, um, won three in a row from what the hell is he talking about <laughs> <laughs> what, the, what are you talking about, Ender? Like, what? They should have won saying? two. They should have won well, two. That's just the nonsense point. They should have. They should have beaten that Kerry team. It turns out they should have beaten that Kerry team. They were probably a better team. And it turns out that Kerry team. But I'm like, just. Let me finish the point. Let me finish the point. Nonsense. That Kerry team was actually better at winning games with fewer resources than the great team, who probably coasted a little bit. I do think that he's got a point about the quality of the opposition at the time that that Tyrone team raise the standard for everybody that Armagh team that Toronto Armagh team raise the standard collectively for both teams and uh, they are great teams and actually that Armagh team is completely undervalued because they didn't get a second All-Ireland and should be in the conversation for team of the decade with those groups we've just been speaking about we just literally mentioned the Cor- Mayo versus Cork and Mayo are clearly the better a better team would beat that Cork team right that's the greatest Mayo team of all time that have never won anything Cork did win All-Ireland but uh, so we can't I mean you Cork can't Cork did win All-Ireland Mayo haven't yeah, but I mean, that's because they've, they're encountering... It's actually, also hammering home my point, it's because can they're I, encountering the greatest team of all time that are going to win 10 in a row. Can I make the point that, that Donny is right to pick out this last year's All-Ireland final winning team? Because I don't think that's the best Dublin team. I think that if he'd picked any of the three previous teams, they would be better teams. One, because Connolly is, is in it. Two, because some of those young lads are coming into a winning culture and they may not be as good as the players who they have replaced. We don't know yet. It's exactly no. the same with the Kilkenny team. So the Kilkenny uh, four-in-a-row team, uh, the team that beats Waterford is potentially even better than the team that beats Tip to do the four-in-a-row. And so if you're picking one of those teams and you can only have that team for one game, I don't think last year's All-Ireland final team is as good as the others and I think Kerry could actually beat that Dublin team OK let's just get the teams back up on screen one last time and let's just go, let's just go through this so if we start with the goalkeeper Dermot Murphy does not get into the Dublin team obviously Mark O'Shea does get in that's one Tom O'Sullivan does he get in there's a debate around that Tom O'Shea gets in that's two and then Mike McCarthy is that a third as well so like straight away if we, if we even go on players alone the back line for Dublin uh, it's a better back line it's not it's it's a Dublin back I mean I know this at way midfield it's one all at it's midfield it's one all it's, it's Darren Brian Fenton uh, in midfield if you're uh, James McCarthy's in the defence then and suddenly it's 4-2 four, four or 5-2. No, James McCarthy is in you can't leave every out of that team, team by the way. in the world. Okay, so let's go... Corner back if you want, but he's getting in. Let's go, let's go with the, the half-forward line here. Who are you dropping from Paul Galvin, Declan O'Sullivan and Ty Canelli? Declan O'Sullivan. What? Okay, well, I might play Declan Sullivan full forward. I think we just need to call this off. I might play Declan Sullivan. Anyway, it's not. Like this, this, look, call this off. This is not that entire full forward line. This is not a. We put in Donahue and there was never a player versus player debate on, and I know that it's suiting you to bring it down that road. Now that you've lost the other overall debate, I've not lost the overall. I think I've actually done pretty well for myself. Who was footballer of the year in '09? In '09, it was who was footballer of the year in 2009. It was Mark O'Shea. Mark O'Shea, or was it Tomas O'Shea? Wasn't Galvin? Was it? Galvin. It was Galvin. It was Paul Galvin 2009, sorry. Um, Fonzie on YouTube says, these Kerry boys just can't take it. It's brilliant. What, what, what's he talking about? Okay, 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 stop, stop. 
Stop. We are going to decide this once and for all over the next four or five months. We are going to go to Sarone. We're going to go to Armagh. We're going to go to Kerry. We're going to let them all make the case in person. We're going to get that team together and we're going to have a final big show somewhere to decide the team of the decades from the noughties. And then we pick that team and they can go up against whatever Dublin team we want and we have a final show to decide who's the winners. That's Deal. Just pick that 2009 Kerry team. Yeah. Put the they team win. back up there for a second. Against, against Armagh 02. What about Dermot They didn't. Well, you, for, yeah, where, does Connolly, where does Connolly fit in that half forward line? Ty so Canelli. He, he, gets, he gets in instead of Paul Galvin, doesn't he? Paul or do you Flynn? drop Ty Canelli? No, he gets in instead of Ty Canelli. You yeah. Paul Galvin and Declan O'Sullivan in. Uh, like, I, Four all stars in a row, Paul Flynn is in there somewhere. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so that's my point about the 2018 team. I don't know if Niall Scully is at Paul Flynn's level. Conor Callan could be an absolute superstar, one of the greatest footballers of all time. We don't know yet, but certainly he's not ahead of Dermot Connolly if you're picking like, the best team that Dublin have had. And Brian Howard might actually be a halfback, like, or a midfielder. So, um, are you um, sort of pumped that Derby Connolly's back back in the game? You are. You definitely are. A hundred percent. But I just want to make sure that it's true. Like he's training with Vincent's is the story. But he's been trained by Brian Cullen. So well, they're mates, you know. I need to get back a bit fit. Will you help me do it? And who knows? Like, Brian, here, listen. Sorry. Can I, I'm going to stop you there now for a second because all the conversation we've just been having about Jim Gavin versus uh, Jason Sherlock and the rules of engagement. There's no way Brian Cullen's going to train Dermot Connolly if there's going to be a possible impact on his involvement with the Dublin footballers. Surely. How would there be an impact, though? That if Jim Gavin gets wind that he's working with Dermot Connolly... What's the impact? The impact is... This back I, sorry. I don't want that guy anything to do with my team. This news is getting out. This is what, you've given credence to this story by being involved with him. I would think... Potentially, I yeah, okay, okay, I can, I can see that. But at the same time, they are mates, you, you help your mates out. It happens once or twice. It's, or they go to the same gym, right? Mm. And it's like, oh, I don't he's know. like squatting or whatever. You know, it's like, can you be, give me a bit of advice? I've got a bit of an injury. It's like that kind of stuff. So on the other side of everything you've been saying about Jason Sherlock and somehow the documentary being an issue, mm. bringing Dermot Connolly back, I it's know. on the back page of the papers. Flex well on... That's... that's, that's Keep the, the hype. <laughs> keep the hype down. It reflects but, well on Jim Gavin, doesn't it? If he does come back in, it's absolutely, like, it's yeah. brilliant. It's exactly the right thing to do for everybody. Of except, it is. except Kerry and Mayo and Donegal and Kildare, who aren't really part of that conversation. Sure. Yeah, just we wish you could just like turn back time so you could actually witness this 09 Kerry team in its pomp. Like that startling rig match, just the, the beauty that was on. Is show. that that game? Is that that game? Uh, listen, he's just grasping at nonsense. What I, I'm like grasping at nonsense. Game, it was one of the greatest takedowns. So to make two things better. There's specifically two things I remember. It's um, Alan Brogan hitting the crossbar. Yeah, very early on. Very early on. And you're like, oh. first play, was very like first play of the game. Was it? Was that early? It's oh, oh, this is going to be one of the great games. And then immediately, that killing Dublin, and Gooch just looking like a child playing. You know, just kind of playing at kid's pace, mm. one-handed, bouncing the ball like a little basketball, and the whole crowd going the wrong direction, he, rolling the ball in, you're like, oh. And here's the question to you, and this is my final point. it was point. so quiet. Would you rather, you can take yourself... No, Kerry people showed up to it. You can, I was there. Yeah, you were like, you and yeah, like, I that's it. You can, you, can, you can take, you can go back in time and watch one game. The, um, the, 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 the magnum opus of each of these teams. So what, the, on, final carry on the one on the one game, uh, on the one hand, is Kerry absolutely pulverizing the All Ireland winners in weight, Dublin in two thousand and nine. Or on the other hand, you have what are the worst you, have, you have Dublin's team 
uh, you have Dublin's Peak, which is pulverizing the would-be All-Ireland champions in Tyrone. Which game are you choosing it's, to pick? Which strawman bullshit? Which, which, exactly. which piece of art? This which, is piece absolute of, which piece of art are you going to look at? Well, the Dublin one isn't even a piece of art. This is not even the engine. It's a car. Whereas this beautiful painting is in the other corner. You're going to look at the painting. Thanks for coming in for the the best OTBAM consistently show of the week. Mondays, yeah. Join see him. you then. Um, uh, we're finished here for the minute. Owen, thanks, William. Join oh, the thank weekend. You. You're down. Owen's gone out to put the hard questions to Jim Gavin, by the way, over the weekend. Jer, just in case you're not aware, and in case anybody else isn't aware, that uh, that's what's happening. I don't like your tone. See the evidence of that. On when is the game? Sunday afternoon. Uh, Saturday night. Saturday night. Very good. So see the evidence of that Sunday. Uh, Cross off the ball channels, I'm sure. And he's got to get the matching scarf from the lads in Tralee on the other side of the cheek. <laughs> uh, we are finished here on OTB AM this morning. Thanks, William, for uh, joining us. As always, loads coming up at Off the Ball Across today. Rugby and Friday Night Racing with David Jennings as well. Tomorrow, live from 1 o'clock, we'll have all the build-up of coverage, of course, as well, of Scotland against Ireland. Kevin Caban and Alan Quinlan uh, are joining these two chaps live on Monday's uh, OTB AM. But for this morning, good morning. So, if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45am. <laughs>